Old Times on the Mississippi by Mark Twain. Chapter One. Cub wants to be a pilot. When I was a boy, there was but one permanent ambition among my comrades in our village on the west bank of the Mississippi River. That was to be a steamboat man. We had transient ambitions of other sorts, but they were only transient. When a circus came and went, it left us all burning to become clowns. The first Negro minstrel show that came to our section left us all suffering to try that kind of life. Now and then we had a hope that if we lived and were good, God would permit us to be pirates. These ambitions faded out, each in its turn. But the ambition to be a steamboat man always remained. Once a day, a cheap, gaudy packet arrived upward from St. Louis, and another downward from Keokuk. Before these events had transpired, the day was glorious with expectancy. After they had transpired, the day was a dead and empty thing. Not only the boys, but the whole village felt this. After all these years, I can picture that old time to myself now, just as it was then. The white town drowsing in the sunlight of a summer's morning. The streets empty, or pretty nearly so. One or two clerks sitting in front of the Water Street stores, with their splint-bottomed chairs tilted back against the wall, chins on breasts, hats slouched over their faces, asleep with shingle shavings enough around to show what broke them down, a sow and a litter of pigs loafing along the sidewalk, doing a good business in watermelon rinds and seeds, two or three lonely little freight piles scattered about the levee, a pile of skids on the slope of the stone-paved wharf, and a fragrant town drunkard asleep in the shadow of them, two or three wood flats at the head of the wharf, but nobody to listen to the peaceful lapping of the wavelets against them the great Mississippi, the majestic, the magnificent Mississippi, rolling its mile-wide tide along, shining in the sun, the dense forest away on the other side, the point above the town, and the point below, bounding the river glimpse, and turning it into a sort of sea, and withal a very still and brilliant and lonely one. Presently a film of dark smoke appears above one of those remote points, Instantly a negro drayman, famous for his quick eye and prodigious voice, lifts up the cry, STEAMBOAT A-COMING! And the scene changes. The town drunkard stirs, the clerks wake up, a furious clatter of drays follows, every house and store pours out a human contribution, and all in a twinkling the dead town is alive and moving. Drays, carts, men— boys all go hurrying from many quarters to a common center, the wharf. Assembled there, the people fasten their eyes upon the coming boat as upon a wonder they are seeing for the first time. The boat is rather a handsome sight, too. She is long and sharp and trim and pretty. She has two tall, fancy-topped chimneys, with a gilded device of some kind swung between them, a fanciful pilot-house, all glass and gingerbread, perched on top of the Texas deck behind them. The paddle-boxes are gorgeous, with a picture, or with gilded rays above the boat's name. The boiler-deck, the hurricane-deck, the Texas deck, are fenced and ornamented with clean white railings. There is a flag gallantly flying from the jack-staff. 
The furnace doors are open and the fires glaring bravely. The upper decks are black with passengers. The captain stands by the big bell, calm, imposing, the envy of all. Great volumes of the blackest smoke are rolling and tumbling out of the chimneys, a husband in grandeur created with a bit of pitch pine just before arriving at a town. The crew are grouped on the forecastle. The broad stage is run far out over the port bow, and an envied deckhand stands picturesquely on the end of it, with a coil of rope in his hand. The pent steam is screaming through the gauge-cocks. The captain lifts his hand, a bell rings, the wheels stop. Then they turn back, churning the water to foam, and the steamer is at rest. Then such a scramble as there is to get aboard, and to get ashore, and to take in freight, and to discharge freight, all at one and the same time and such a yelling and cursing as the mates facilitated all with. Ten minutes later the steamer is under way again, with no flag on the jack-staff, and no black smoke issuing from the chimneys. After ten more minutes the town is dead again, and the town drunkard asleep by the skids once more. My father was a justice of the peace, and I supposed he possessed the power of life and death over all men, and could hang anybody that offended him. This was distinction enough for me as a general thing, but the desire to be a steamboat man kept intruding nevertheless. I first wanted to be a cabin boy, so that I could come out with a white apron on and shake a tablecloth over the side where all my old comrades could see me. Later I thought I would rather be the deckhand who stood on the end of the stage plank with a coil of rope in his hand, because he was particularly conspicuous. But these were only daydreams. They were too heavenly to be contemplated as real possibilities. By and by, one of our boys went away. He was not heard of for a long time. At last he turned up as an apprentice engineer or striker on a steamboat. This thing shook the bottom out of all my Sunday school teachings. That boy had been notoriously worldly, and I just the reverse— yet he was exalted to this eminence, and I left in obscurity and misery. There was nothing generous about this fellow in his greatness. He would always manage to have a rusty bolt to scrub while his boat tarried at our town, and he would sit on the inside guard and scrub it, where we all could see him and envy him and loathe him. And whenever his boat was laid up, he would come home and swell around the town in his blackest and greasiest clothes, so that nobody could help remembering that he was a steamboat man. And he used all sorts of steamboat technicalities in his talk, as if he were so used to them that he forgot common people could not understand them. He would speak of the larboard side of a horse in an easy, natural way that would make one wish he was dead. He was always talking about St. Louis, like an old citizen. He would refer casually to occasions when he was coming down Fourth Street, or when he was passing by the planter's house, or when there was a fire and he took a turn on the brakes of the old big Missouri, and then he would go on and lie about how many towns the size of ours were burned down there that day. Two or three of the boys had long been persons of consideration among us, because they had been to St. Louis once, and had a vague general knowledge of its wonders. But the day of their glory was over now. They lapsed into humble silence, and learned to disappear when the ruthless cub engineer approached. This fellow had money, too, and hair oil. 
also an ignorant silver watch and a showy brass watch-chain. He wore a leather belt and used no suspenders. If ever a youth was cordially admired and hated by his comrades, this one was. No girl could withstand his charms. He cut out every boy in the village. When his boat blew up at last, it diffused a tranquil contentment among us such as we had not known for months. But when he came home the next week, alive, renowned, and appeared in church all battered up and bandaged, a shining hero, stared at and wondered over by everybody, it seemed to us that the partiality of providence for an undeserving reptile had reached a point where it was open to criticism. This creature's career could produce but one result, and it speedily followed. Boy after boy managed to get on the river. The minister's son became an engineer. The doctor's and the postmaster's sons became mud clerks. The wholesale liquor dealer's son became a barkeeper on a boat. Four sons of the chief merchant and two sons of the county judge became pilots. Pilot was the grandest position of all. The pilot, even in those days of trivial wages, had a princely salary, from a hundred and fifty to two hundred and fifty dollars a month, and no board to pay. Two months of his wages would pay a preacher's salary for a year. Now, some of us were left disconsolate. We could not get on the river, at least our parents would not let us. So, by and by, I ran away. I said I never would come home again till I was a pilot and could come in glory. But somehow I could not manage it. I went meekly aboard a few of the boats that lay packed together like sardines at the long St. Louis wharf, and very humbly inquired for the pilots, but got only a cold shoulder and short words from mates and clerks. I had to make the best of this sort of treatment, for the time being, but I had comforting daydreams of a future when I should be a great and honored pilot with plenty of money, and could kill some of these mates and clerks and pay for them. Months afterward the hope within me struggled to a reluctant death, and I found myself without an ambition. But I was ashamed to go home. I was in Cincinnati, and I set to work to map out a new career. I had been reading about the recent exploration of the river Amazon by an expedition sent out by our government. It was said that the expedition, owing to difficulties, had not thoroughly explored a part of the country lying about the headwaters, some four thousand miles from the mouth of the river. It was only about fifteen hundred miles from Cincinnati to New Orleans, where I could doubtless get a ship. I had thirty dollars left. I would go and complete the exploration of the Amazon. This was all the thought I gave the subject. I never was great in matters of detail. I packed my valise, and took passage on an ancient tub called the Paul Jones, for New Orleans. For the sum of sixteen dollars I had the scarred and tarnished splendors of her main saloon principally to myself, for she was not a creature to attract the eye of wiser travelers. When we presently got under way, and went poking down the broad Ohio, I became a new being, and the subject of my own admiration. I was a traveler. A word never had tasted so good in my mouth before. I had an exultant sense of being bound for mysterious lands and distant climes, which I never have felt in so uplifting a degree since. I was in such a glorified condition that all ignoble feelings departed out of me, and I was able to look down and pity the untraveled with a compassion 
that had hardly a trace of contempt in it. Still, when we stopped at villages and wood-yards, I could not help lolling carelessly upon the railings of the boiler-deck to enjoy the envy of the country boys on the bank. If they did not seem to discover me, I presently sneezed to attract their attention or moved to a position where they could not help seeing me. And as soon as I knew they saw me, I gaped and stretched, and gave other signs of being mightily bored with traveling. I kept my hat off all the time, and stayed where the wind and the sun could strike me, because I wanted to get the bronzed and weather-beaten look of an old traveler. Before the second day was half gone, I experienced a joy which filled me with the purest gratitude, for I saw that the skin had begun to blister and peel off my face and neck. I wished that the boys and girls at home could see me now. We reached Louisville in time, at least the neighborhood of it. We stuck hard and fast on the rocks in the middle of the river and lay there four days. I was now beginning to feel a strong sense of being a part of the boat's family, a sort of infant son to the captain and younger brother to the officers. There is no estimating the pride I took in this grandeur, or the affection that began to swell and grow in me for these people. I could not know how the lordly steamboatman scorns that sort of presumption in a mere landsman. I particularly longed to acquire the least trifle of notice from the big stormy mate, and I was on the alert for an opportunity to do him a service to that end. It came at last. The riotous powwow of setting a spar was going on down on the forecastle, and I went down there and stood around in the way, or mostly skipping out of it, till the mate suddenly roared a general order for somebody to bring him a capstan bar. I sprang to his side and said, "'Tell me where it is. I'll fetch it.' If a rag-picker had offered to do a diplomatic service for the Emperor of Russia, the monarch could not have been more astounded than the mate was. He even stopped swearing. He stood and stared down at me. It took him ten seconds to scrape his disjointed remains together again. Then he said impressively, "'Well, if this don't beat hell!' and turned to his work with the air of a man who had been confronted with a problem too abstruse for solution. I crept away, and courted solitude for the rest of the day. I did not go to dinner. I stayed away from supper until everybody else had finished. I did not feel so much like a member of the boat's family now as before. However, my spirits returned in installments as we pursued our way down the river. I was sorry I hated the mate so, because it was not in young human nature not to admire him. He was huge and muscular. His face was bearded and whiskered all over. He had a red woman and a blue woman tattooed on his right arm, one on each side of a blue anchor with a red rope to it. And in the matter of profanity he was perfect. When he was getting out cargo at a landing, I was always where I could see and hear. He felt all the sublimity of his great position, and made the world feel it, too. When he gave even the simplest order, he discharged it like a blast of lightning, and sent a long, reverberating peal of profanity thundering after it. I could not help contrasting the way in which the average landsman would give an order with the mate's way of doing it. If the landsman should wish the gangplank moved a foot further forward, he would probably say, "'James!' or "'William, uh, one of you push that plank forward, please.' But put the mate in his place, and he would roar out, 
Here, now, start that gangplank forward. Lively, now. What are you about? Snatch it! Snatch it! There! There! Aft again! Aft again! Don't you hear me? Dash it to dash! Are you going to sleep over it? Vast heaven! Vast heaven, I tell you! Going to heave it clear astern? Where are you going with that barrel? Forward with it, for I make you swallow it, you dash, 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 split between a tired mud turtle and a crippled hearse horse. I wished I could talk like that. When the soreness of my adventure with the mate had somewhat worn off, I began timidly to make up to the humblest official connected with the boat, the night watchman. He snubbed my advances at first, but I presently adventured to offer him a new chalk pipe, and that softened him. So he allowed me to sit with him by the big bell on the hurricane deck, and in time he melted into conversation. He could not well have helped it, I hung with such homage on his words, and so plainly showed that I felt honored by his notice. He told me the names of dim capes and shadowy islands as we glided by them in the solemnity of the night, under the winking stars, and by and by got to talking about himself. He seemed over-sentimental for a man whose salary was six dollars a week, or rather he might have seemed so to an older person than I. But I drank in his words hungrily and with a faith that might have moved mountains if it had been applied judiciously. What was it to me that he was soiled and seedy and fragrant with gin? What was it to me that his grammar was bad, his construction worse, and his profanity so void of art that it was an element of weakness rather than strength in his conversation? He was a wronged man, a man who had seen trouble, and that was enough for me. As he mellowed into his plaintive history, his tears dripped upon the lantern in his lap, and I cried, too, from sympathy. He said he was the son of an English nobleman, either an earl or an alderman, he could not remember which, but believed he was both. His father, the nobleman, loved him, but his mother hated him from the cradle, and so while he was still a little boy he was sent to one of them old ancient colleges, he couldn't remember which and by and by his father died and his mother seized the property and shook him, as he phrased it. After his mother shook him, members of the nobility with whom he was acquainted used their influence to get him the position of loblolly boy in a ship, and from that point my watchman threw off all trammels of date and locality and branched out into a narrative that bristled all along with incredible adventures a narrative that was so reeking with bloodshed and so crammed with hair-breadth escapes and the most engaging and unconscious personal villainies that i sat speechless enjoying shuddering wondering worshipping it was a sore blight to find out afterwards that he was a low vulgar ignorant sentimental half-witted humbug an untraveled native of the wilds of illinois who had absorbed wildcat literature and appropriated its marvels, until in time he had woven odds and ends of the mess into this yarn, and then gone on telling it to fledglings like me, until he had come to believe it himself. End of chapter 1 This is section 2 of Old Times on the Mississippi by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Old Times on the Mississippi by Mark Twain, Chapter 2 A Cub Pilot's Experience, or Learning the River. What with lying on the rocks four days at Louisville, and some other delays, 
the poor old Paul Jones fooled away about two weeks in making the voyage from Cincinnati to New Orleans. This gave me a chance to get acquainted with one of the pilots, and he taught me how to steer the boat, and thus made the fascination of river life more potent than ever for me. It also gave me a chance to get acquainted with a youth who had taken deck passage, more's the pity, for he easily borrowed six dollars of me on a promise to return to the boat and pay it back to me the day after we should arrive. But he probably died or forgot, for he never came. It was doubtless the former, since he had said his parents were wealthy and he only traveled deck passage because it was cooler. Note one, deck passage, i.e., steerage passage. I soon discovered two things. One was that a vessel would not be likely to sail for the mouth of the Amazon under ten or twelve years, and the other was that the nine or ten dollars still left in my pocket would not suffice for so imposing an exploration as I had planned, even if I could afford to wait for a ship. Therefore it followed that I must contrive a new career. The Paul Jones was now bound for St. Louis. I planned a siege against my pilot, and at the end of three hard days he surrendered. He agreed to teach me the Mississippi River from New Orleans to St. Louis for five hundred dollars, payable out of the first wages I should receive after graduating. I entered upon the small enterprise of learning twelve or thirteen hundred miles of the great Mississippi River with the easy confidence of my time of life. If I had really known what I was about to require of my faculties, I should not have had the courage to begin. I supposed that all a pilot had to do was to keep his boat in the river, and I did not consider that that could be much of a trick, since it was so wide. The boat backed out from New Orleans at four in the afternoon, and it was our watch until eight. Mr. B., my chief, straightened her up, plowed her along past the sterns of the other boats that lay at the levee, and then said, here, take her. Shave those steamships as close as you'd peel an apple. I took the wheel, and my heart went down into my boots, for it seemed to me that we were about to scrape the side off of every ship in the line we were so close. I held my breath and began to claw the boat away from the danger, and I had my own opinion of the pilot, who had known no better than to get us into such peril, but I was too wise to express it. In half a minute I had a wide margin of safety intervening between the Paul Jones and the ships, and within ten seconds more I was set aside in disgrace, and Mr. B. was going into danger again and flaying me alive with abuse of my cowardice. I was stung, but I was obliged to admire the easy confidence with which my chief loafed from side to side of his wheel and trimmed the ship so closely that disaster seemed ceaselessly imminent. When he had cooled a little— he told me that the easy water was close ashore and the current outside, and therefore we must hug the bank upstream to get the benefit of the former and stay well out downstream to take advantage of the latter. In my own mind I resolved to be a downstream pilot and leave the upstreaming to people dead to prudence. Now and then Mr. B. called my attention to certain things. Said he, "'This is Six Mile Point,' I assented. It was pleasant enough information, but I could not see the bearing of it. I was not conscious that it was a matter of any interest to me. Another time he said, "'This is Nine Mile Point.' Later he said, "'This is Twelve Mile Point.' They were all about level with the water's edge. They all looked about alike to me. They were monotonously unpicturesque. 
I hoped Mr. B. would change the subject, but no, he would crowd up around a point, hugging the shore with affection, and then say, The slack water ends here, abreast this bunch of china trees. Now we cross over. So he crossed over. He gave me the wheel once or twice, but I had no luck. I either came near chipping off the edge of a sugar plantation, or else I yawed too far from shore, and so I dropped back into disgrace again and got abused. The watch was ended at last, and we took supper and went to bed. At midnight the glare of a lantern shone in my eyes, and the night watchman said, "'Come, turn out!' and then he left. I could not understand this extraordinary procedure, so I presently gave up trying to and dozed off to sleep. Pretty soon the watchman was back again, and this time he was gruff. I was annoyed. I said, "'What do you want to come bothering around here in the middle of the night for? Now, as like as not, I'll not get to sleep again tonight.' The watchman said, "'Well, if this ain't good, I'm blessed.' The off-watch was just turning in, and I heard some brutal laughter from them, and such remarks as, "'Hello, watchman. Ain't the new cub turned out yet? He's delicate, likely. Give him some sugar and a rag, and send for the chambermaid to sing rock a baby to him.' About this time Mr. B. appeared on the scene. Something like a minute later I was climbing up the pilot-house steps with some of my clothes on and the rest in my arms. Mr. B. was close behind, commenting, "'Here was something fresh, this thing of getting up in the middle of the night to go to work.' It was a detail in piloting that had never occurred to me at all. I knew that boats ran all night, but somehow I had never happened to reflect that somebody had to get up out of a warm bed to run them. I began to fear that piloting was not quite so romantic as I had imagined it was. There was something very real and work-like about this new phase of it. It was a rather dingy night, although a fair number of stars were out. The big mate was at the wheel, and he had the old tub pointed at a star and was holding her straight up the middle of the river. The shores on either hand were not much more than a mile apart, but they seemed wonderfully far away and ever so vague and indistinct. The mate said, "'We've got to land at Jones Plantation, sir.' The vengeful spirit in me exulted. I said to myself, "'I wish you joy of your job, Mr. B.' You'll have a good time finding Mr. Jones's plantation such a night as this, and I hope you never will find it as long as you live. Mr. B. said to the mate, Upper end of the plantation or the lower? Upper. I can't do it. The stumps there are out of the water at this stage. It's no great distance to the lower, and you'll have to get along with that. All right, sir. If Jones don't like it, he'll have to lump it, I reckon. And then the mate left. My exultation began to cool, and my wonder to come up. Here was a man who not only proposed to find this plantation on such a night, but to find either end of it you preferred. I dreadfully wanted to ask a question, but I was carrying about as many short answers as my cargo room would admit of. So I held my peace. All I desired to ask Mr. B. was the simple question whether he was ass enough to really imagine he was going to find that plantation on a night when all plantations were exactly alike and all the same color. But I held in. I used to have fine inspirations of prudence in those days. Mr. B. made for the shore and soon was scraping it just the same as if it had been daylight, and not only that, but singing. Father in heaven, the day is declining, etc. It seemed to me that I had put my life in the keeping of a peculiarly reckless outcast. 
Presently he turned on me and said, "'What's the name of the first point above New Orleans?' I was gratified to be able to answer promptly, and I did. I said I didn't know. "'Don't know!' This manner jolted me. I was down at the foot again in a moment. But I had to say just what I had said before. "'Well, you're a smart one,' said Mr. B. "'What's the name of the next point?' Once more I didn't know. "'Well, this beats anything. Tell me the name of any point or place I told you.' I studied a while and decided that I couldn't. Look at here. Where do you start out from? Above Twelve Mile Point, to cross over. I, I, I don't know. You, you don't know, mimicking my drawling manner of speech. What do you know? I, I, uh, nothing for certain. By the great Caesar's ghost, I believe you. You're the stupidest dunderhead I ever saw or ever heard of, so help me Moses. The idea of you being a pilot, you, why, you don't know enough to pilot a cow down a lane. Oh, but his wrath was up. He was a nervous man, and he shuffled from one side of his wheel to the other as if the floor was hot. He would boil a while to himself and then overflow and scald me again. Look at here. What do you suppose I told you the names of those points for? I tremblingly considered a moment, and then the devil of temptation provoked me to say, Well, to, to be entertaining, I thought. This was a red rag to the bull. He raged and stormed so, he was crossing the river at the time, that I judge it made him blind, because he ran over the steering oar of a trading scow. Of course, the traders sent up a volley of red-hot profanity. Never was a man so grateful as Mr. B. was because he was brimful, and here were subjects who would talk back. He threw open a window, thrust his head out, and such an eruption followed as I never had heard before. The fainter and farther away the scowman's curses drifted, the higher Mr. B. lifted his voice, and the weightier his adjectives grew. When he closed the window he was empty. You could have drawn a sane through his system and not caught curses enough to disturb your mother with. Presently he said to me in the gentlest way, "'My boy,' You must get a little memorandum book, and every time I tell you a thing, put it down right away. There's only one way to be a pilot, and that is to get this entire river by heart. You have to know it just like A, B, C. That was a dismal revelation to me, for my memory was never loaded with anything but blank cartridges. However, I did not feel discouraged long. I judged that it was best to make some allowances, for doubtless Mr. B was stretching— Presently he pulled a rope and struck a few strokes on the big bell. The stars were all gone now, and the night was as black as ink. I could hear the wheels churn along the bank, but I was not entirely certain that I could see the shore. The voice of the invisible watchman called up from the hurricane deck, "'What's this, sir?' "'Jones Plantation!' I said to myself, "'I wish I might venture to offer a small bet that it isn't.' But I did not chirp. I only waited to see." Mr. B. handled the engine bells, and in due time the boat's nose came to the land. A torch glowed from the forecastle. A man skipped ashore. A darkey's voice on the bank said, "'Give me the carpet-bag, Mars Jones!' And the next moment we were standing up the river again, all serene. I reflected deeply a while, and then said, but not aloud, "'Well, the finding of that plantation was the luckiest accident that ever happened, but it couldn't happen again in a hundred years, and I fully believed it was an accident, too.' 
By the time we had gone seven or eight hundred miles up the river, I had learned to be a tolerably plucky upstream steersman in daylight, and before we reached St. Louis, I had made a trifle of progress in night work, but only a trifle. I had a notebook that fairly bristled with the names of towns, points, bars, islands, bends, reaches, etc., but the information was to be found only in the notebook. None of it was in my head. It made my heart ache to think I had only got half of the river set down, for as our watch was four hours off and four hours on, night and day, there was a long four-hour gap in my book for every time I had slept since the voyage began. My chief was presently hired to go on a big New Orleans boat, and I packed my satchel and went with him. She was a grand affair. When I stood in her pilot-house, I was so far above the water that I seemed perched on a mountain, and her decks stretched so far away, fore and aft, below me, that I wondered how I could ever have considered the little Paul Jones a large craft. There were other differences, too. The Paul Jones's pilot-house was a cheap, dingy, battered rattle-trap, cramped for room. But here was a sumptuous glass temple, room enough to have a dance in, showy red and gold window curtains, an imposing sofa, leather cushions, and a back to the high bench where visiting pilots sit to spin yarns and look at the river. Bright, fanciful cuspidors instead of a broad wooden box filled with sawdust. Nice new oilcloth on the floor. A hospital big stove for winter. A wheel as high as my head, costly with inlaid work. A wire tiller rope bright brass knobs for the bells, and a tidy white-aproned black Texas tender to bring up tarts and ices and coffee during mid-watch, day and night. Now this was something like, and so I began to take heart once more to believe that piloting was a romantic sort of occupation after all. The moment we were under way I began to prowl about the great steamer and fill myself with joy. She was as clean and as dainty as a drawing-room. When I looked down her long gilded saloon, it was like gazing through a splendid tunnel. She had an oil picture by some gifted sign-painter on every stateroom door. She glittered with no end of prism-fringed chandeliers. The clerk's office was elegant, the bar was marvelous, and the barkeeper had been barbered and upholstered at incredible cost. The boiler deck, i.e. the second story of the boat, so to speak, was as spacious as a church, it seemed to me. So with the forecastle, and there was no pitiful handful of deckhands, firemen, and roustabouts down there, but a whole battalion of men. The fires were fiercely glaring from a long row of furnaces, and over them were eight huge boilers. This was unutterable pomp. Of the mighty engines! But enough of this. I had never felt so fine before and when I found that the regiment of natty servants respectfully served me, my satisfaction was complete. When I returned to the pilot-house, St. Louis was gone, and I was lost. Here was a piece of river which was all down in my book, but I could make neither head nor tail of it. You understand it was turned around. I had seen it when coming upstream, but I had never faced about to see how it looked when it was behind me. My heart broke again, for it was plain that I had got to learn this troublesome river both ways. The pilot-house was full of pilots going down to look at the river. What is called the Upper River, the two hundred miles between St. Louis and Cairo, where the Ohio comes in, was low, 
and the Mississippi changes its channel so constantly that the pilots used to always find it necessary to run down to Cairo to take a fresh look, when their boats were to lie in port a week, that is, when the water was at a low stage. A deal of this looking at the river was done by poor fellows who seldom had a berth, and whose only hope of getting one lay in their being always freshly posted, and therefore ready to drop into the shoes of some reputable pilot for a single trip on account of such pilot's sudden illness or some other necessity. And a good many of them constantly ran up and down inspecting the river, not because they ever really hoped to get a berth, but because, they being guests of the boat, it was cheaper to look at the river than stay ashore and pay board. In time these fellows grew dainty in their tastes, and only infested boats that had an established reputation for setting good tables. All visiting pilots were useful, for they were always ready and willing, winter or summer, night or day, to go out in the yawl and help buoy the channel, or assist the boat's pilots in any way they could. They were likewise welcome because all pilots are tireless talkers when gathered together, and as they talk only about the river, they are always understood and are always interesting. Your true pilot cares nothing about anything on earth but the river, and his pride in his occupation surpasses the pride of kings. We had a fine company of these river inspectors along this trip, and there were eight or ten, and there was abundance of room for them in our great pilot house. Two or three of them wore polished silk hats, elaborate shirt-fronts, diamond breastpins, kid gloves, and patent leather boots. They were choice in their English, and bore themselves with a dignity proper to men of solid means and prodigious reputation as pilots. The others were more or less loosely clad, and wore upon their heads tall felt cones that were suggestive of the days of the Commonwealth. I was a cipher in this august company, and felt subdued, not to say torpid. I was not even of sufficient consequence to assist at the wheel when it was necessary to put the tiller hard down in a hurry. The guest that stood nearest did that when occasion required, and this was pretty much all the time because of the crookedness of the channel and the scant water. I stood in a corner, and the talk I listened to took the hope all out of me. One visitor said to another, "'Jim, how'd you run Plum Point coming up?' "'It was in the night there, and I ran it the way one of the boys on the Diana told me. Started out about fifty yards above the woodpile on the false point, and held on to the cabin under Plum Point till I raised the reef, quarter less twain.' then straightened up for the middle bar till I got well abreast the old one-limbed cottonwood in the bend, then got my stern on the cottonwood and head on the low place above the point and came through a booming nine and a half. Pretty square crossing, ain't it? Yes, but the upper bar's working down fast. Another pilot spoke up and said, I had better water than that, and ran it lower down. Started out from the false point, Mark Twain, and raised the second reef abreast and the big snag in the bend, and had a quarter less twain. One of the gorgeous ones remarked, "'I don't want to find fault with your leadsman, but that's a good deal of water for Plum Point, it seems to me.' There was an approving nod all around as this quiet snub dropped on the boaster and settled him. And so they went on talk-talk-talking. Meantime, the thing that was running in my mind was— now, if my ears here are right, I have not only to get the names of all the towns and islands and bends and so on by heart, 
but I must even get up a warm personal acquaintanceship with every old snag and one-limbed cottonwood and obscure woodpile that ornaments the banks of this river for twelve hundred miles. And more than that, I must actually know where these things are in the dark, unless these guests are gifted with eyes that can pierce through two miles of solid blackness. I wish the piloting business was in Jericho, and I had never thought of it. At dusk Mr. B. tapped the big bell three times, the signal to land, and the captain emerged from his drawing-room in the forward end of the Texas, and looked up inquiringly. Mr. B. said, "'We will lay up here all night, Captain.' "'Very well, sir.' That was all. The boat came to shore and was tied up for the night. It seemed to me a fine thing that the pilot could do as he pleased without asking so grand a captain's permission— I took my supper and went immediately to bed, discouraged by my day's observations and experiences. My late voyage's notebooking was but a confusion of meaningless names. It had tangled me all up in a knot every time I had looked at it in the daytime. I now hoped for respite in sleep, but no, it reveled all through my head till sunrise came, a frantic and tireless nightmare. Next morning I felt pretty rusty and low-spirited, we went booming along, taking a good many chances, for we were anxious to get out of the river, as getting out to Cairo was called, before night should overtake us. But Mr. B.'s partner, the other pilot, presently grounded the boat, and we lost so much time getting her off that it was plain the darkness would overtake us a good long way above the mouth. This was a great misfortune, especially to certain of our visiting pilots whose boats would have to wait for their return no matter how long that might be. It sobered the pilot-house talk a good deal. Coming upstream, pilots did not mind low water or any kind of darkness. Nothing stopped them but fog. But downstream work was different. A boat was too nearly helpless with a stiff current pushing behind her, so it was not customary to run downstream at night in low water. There seemed to be one small hope, however— if we could get through the intricate and dangerous Hat Island crossing before night, we could venture the rest, for we would have plainer sailing and better water. But it would be insanity to attempt Hat Island at night. So there was a deal of looking at watches all the rest of the day, and a constant ciphering upon the speed we were making. Hat Island was the eternal subject. Sometimes hope was high, and sometimes we were delayed in a bad crossing, and down it went again. For hours all hands lay under the burden of this suppressed excitement. It was even communicated to me, and I got to feeling so solicitous about Hat Island, and under such an awful pressure of responsibility, that I wished I might have five minutes on shore to draw a good, full, relieving breath and start over again. We were standing no regular watches. Each of our pilots ran such portions of the river as he had run when coming upstream, because of his great familiarity with it, but both remained in the pilot-house constantly. An hour before sunset Mr. B. took the wheel, and Mr. W. stepped aside. For the next thirty minutes every man held his watch in his hand, and was restless, silent, and uneasy. At last somebody said, with a doomful sigh, "'Well, yonder's Hat Island, and we can't make it.' All the watches closed with a snap." Everybody sighed and muttered something about its being too bad, too bad. Ah, if we could only have got here half an hour sooner. And the place was thick with the atmosphere of disappointment. 
Some started to go out, but loitered, hearing no bell tap to land. The sun dipped behind the horizon. The boat went on. Inquiring looks passed from one guest to another, and one who had his hand on the doorknob and had turned it waited, then presently took away his hand and let the knob turn back again. We bore steadily down the bend. More looks were exchanged, and nods of surprised admiration, but no words. Insensibly the men drew together behind Mr. B., as the sky darkened and one or two dim stars came out. The dead silence and sense of waiting became oppressive. Mr. B. pulled the cord, and two deep mellow notes from the big bell floated off on the night. Then a pause, and one more note was struck. The watchman's voice followed from the hurricane deck. "'Larboard lead there! Starboard lead!' The cries of the leadsmen began to rise out of the distance, and were gruffly repeated by the word-passers on the hurricane deck. "'Mark three! Mark three! Quarterless three! Half twain! Marker twain! Mark twain! Quarterless!' Mr. B. pulled two bell-ropes and was answered by faint jinglings far below in the engine-room, and our speed slackened. The steam began to whistle through the gauge-cocks. The cries of the leadsmen went on, and it is a weird sound always in the night. Every pilot in the lot was watching now, with fixed eyes, and talking under his breath. Nobody was calm and easy but Mr. B. He would put his wheel down and stand on a spoke, and as the steamer swung into her, to me, utterly invisible marks, for we seemed to be in the midst of a wide and gloomy sea, he would meet up and fasten her there. Talk was going on now in low voices. There, she's over the first reef all right. After a pause, another subdued voice. Her stern's coming down just exactly right, by George. Now she's in the marks. Over she goes. Somebody else muttered, Oh, it was done beautiful, beautiful. Now the engines were stopped altogether, and we drifted with the current. Not that I could see the boat drift, for I could not, the stars being all gone by this time. This drifting was the dismalest work. It held one's heart still. Presently I discovered a blacker gloom than that which surrounded us. It was the head of the island. We were closing right down upon it. We entered its deeper shadow, and so imminent seemed the peril that I was likely to suffocate. I had the strongest impulse to do something, anything, to save the vessel. But still Mr. B. stood by his wheel, silent, intent as a cat, and all the pilots stood shoulder to shoulder at his back. "'She'll not make it,' somebody whispered. The water grew shoaler and shoaler by the leadsman's cries, till it was down to eight and a half, eight feet, eight feet. Seven and Mr. B. said warningly through his speaking-tube to the engineer, "'Stand by now.' "'Aye, aye, sir. Seven and a half. Seven feet. Six and—' We touched bottom. Instantly Mr. B. set a lot of bells ringing, shouted through the tube, "'Now let her have it. Every ounce you've got.' Then to his partner, "'Put her hard down. Snatch her. Snatch her.' The boat rasped and ground her way through the sand hung upon the apex of disaster a single tremendous instant, and then over she went, and such a shout as went up at Mr. B.'s back never loosened the roof of a pilot-house before. There was no more trouble after that. Mr. B. was a hero that night, 
and it was some little time, too, before his exploit ceased to be talked about by rivermen. Fully to realize the marvelous precision required in laying the great steamer in her marks in that murky waste of water, one should know that not only must she pick her intricate way through snags and blind reefs, and then shave the head of the island so closely as to brush the overhanging foliage with her stern, but at one place she must pass almost within arm's reach of a sunken and invisible wreck that would snatch the hull timbers from under her if she should strike it, and destroy a quarter of a million dollars worth of steamboat and cargo in five minutes, and maybe a hundred and fifty human lives into the bargain. The last remark I heard that night was a compliment to Mr. B., uttered in soliloquy and with unction by one of our guests. He said, "'By the shadow of death!' but he's a lightning pilot. End of chapter 2 This is section 3 of Old Times on the Mississippi by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Old Times on the Mississippi, Chapter 3 The Continued Perplexities of Cub Piloting At the end of what seemed a tedious while, I had managed to pack my head full of islands, towns, bars, points, and bends, and a curiously inanimate mass of lumber it was, too. However, inasmuch as I could shut my eyes and reel off a good long string of these names without leaving out more than ten miles of river in every fifty, I began to feel that I could take a boat down to New Orleans if I could make her skip those little gaps but of course my complacency could hardly get start enough to lift my nose a trifle into the air before Mr. B. would think of something to fetch it down again. One day he turned on me suddenly with this settler. What is the shape of Walnut Bend? He might as well have asked me my grandmother's opinion of protoplasm. I reflected respectfully, and then I said I didn't know it had any particular shape. My gunpowdery chief went off with a bang, of course, and then went on loading and tiring until he was out of adjectives. I had learned long ago that he only carried just so many rounds of ammunition, and was sure to subside into a very placable and even remorseful old smoothbore as soon as they were all gone. That word old is merely affectionate. He was not more than thirty-four. I waited. By and by, he said, My boy, you've got to know the shape of the river perfectly. It is all there is left to steer by on a very dark night. Everything else is blotted out and gone. But, mind you, it hasn't the same shape in the night that it has in the daytime. How on earth am I ever going to learn it, then? How do you follow a hall at home in the dark? Because you know the shape of it. You can't see it. Do you mean to say that I've got to know all the million trifling variations of shape in the banks of this interminable river, as well as I know the shape of the front hall at home? On my honor, you've got to know them better than any man ever did know the shapes of the halls in his own house. I wish I was dead. Now, I don't want to discourage you, but, well, pile it on me. I might as well have it now as another time. You see— this has got to be learned. There isn't any getting around it. A clear, starlight night throws such heavy shadows that if you didn't know the shape of a shore perfectly, 
you would claw away from every bunch of timber because you would take the black shadow of it for a solid cape. And, you see, you would be getting scared to death every fifteen minutes by the watch. You would be fifty yards from shore all the time when you ought to be within twenty feet of it. You can't see a snag in one of those shadows, but you know exactly where it is, and the shape of the river tells you when you are coming to it. Then there's your pitch-dark night. The river is a very different shape on a pitch-dark night from what it is on a starlight night. All shores seem to be straight lines then, and mighty dim ones, too. And you'd run them for straight lines, only you know better. You boldly drive your boat right into what seems to be a solid straight wall, you know very well that in reality there is a curve there, and that wall falls back and makes way for you. Then there's your gray mist. You take a night when there's one of these grisly, drizzly gray mists, and then there isn't any particular shape to a shore. A gray mist would tangle the head of the oldest man that ever lived. Well, then, different kinds of moonlight change the shape of the river in different ways. You see, oh, don't say any more, please. Have I got to learn the shape of the river according to all these five hundred thousand different ways? If I tried to carry all that cargo in my head, it would make me stoop-shouldered. No, you only learn the shape of the river, and you learn it with such absolute certainty that you can always steer by the shape that's in your head, and never mind the one that's before your eyes. Very well, I'll try it, but after I have learned it, can I depend on it? Will it keep the same form and not go fooling around? Before Mr. B. could answer, Mr. W. came in to take the watch, and he said, B., you'll have to look out for President's Island and all that country clear away up above the old hen and the chickens. The banks are caving, and the shape of the shore is changing like everything. Why, you wouldn't know the point above forty. You can go inside the old sycamore snag now. Note one. It may not be necessary, but still it can do no harm to explain that inside means between the snag and the shore. Mark Twain. So that question was answered. Here were leagues of shore changing shape. My spirits were down in the mud again. Two things seemed pretty apparent to me. One was that in order to be a pilot, a man had got to learn more than any one man ought to be allowed to know, and the other was that he must learn it all over again in a different way every twenty-four hours. That night we had the watch until twelve. Now, it was an ancient river custom for the two pilots to chat a bit when the watch changed. While the relieving pilot put on his gloves and lit his cigar, his partner, the retiring pilot, would say something like this. I judge the upper bar is making down a little at Hale's Point, had quarter twain with a lower lead, and Mark Twain, note one, two fathoms, quarter twain is two and a quarter fathoms, thirteen and a half feet, Mark three is three fathoms, end note one, with the other, yes, I thought it was making down a little, last trip, meet any boats? Met one abreast of the head of twenty-one, but she was away over hugging the bar, and I couldn't make her out entirely. I took her for the sunny south, hadn't any skylights for the chimneys, and so on. And as the relieving pilot took the wheel, his partner—note two—partner is a technical for the other pilot.
End of note two. Would mention that we were in such and such a bend, and say we were abreast of such and such a man's woodyard or plantation. This was courtesy. I supposed it was necessity. But Mr. W. came on watch full twelve minutes late on this particular night, a tremendous breach of etiquette. In fact, it is the unpardonable sin among pilots. So Mr. B. gave him no greeting whatever, but simply surrendered the wheel and marched out of the pilot house without a word. I was appalled. It was a villainous night for blackness. We were in a particular wide and blind part of the river, where there was no shape or substance to anything, and it seemed incredible that Mr. B. should have left that poor fellow to kill the boat trying to find out where he was. But I resolved that I would stand by him anyway. He should find that he was not wholly friendless. So I stood around and waited to be asked where we were. But Mr. W. plunged on serenely through the solid firmament of black cats that stood for an atmosphere, and never opened his mouth. Here is a proud devil, I thought. Here is a limb of Satan that would rather send us all to destruction than put himself under obligations to me, because I am not yet one of the salt of the earth and privileged to snub captains and lord it over everything dead and alive in a steamboat. I presently climbed up on the bench. I did not think it was safe to go to sleep while this lunatic was on watch. However, I must have gone to sleep in the course of time, because the next thing I was aware of was the fact that day was breaking, Mr. W. gone, and Mr. B. at the wheel again. So it was four o'clock and all well, but me. I felt like a skin full of dry bones and all of them trying to ache at once. Mr. B. asked me what I had stayed up there for. I confessed that it was to do Mr. W. a benevolence, tell him where he was. It took five minutes for the entire preposterousness of the thing to filter into Mr. B.'s system, and then I judge it filled him nearly up to the chin, because he paid me a compliment, and uh, not much of one, either. He said, "'Well, taking you by and large, you do seem to be more different kinds of an ass than any creature I ever saw before.' What did you suppose he wanted to know for? I said I thought it might be a convenience to him. Convenience? Dash! Didn't I tell you that a man's got to know the river in the night the same as he'd know his own front hall? Well, I can follow the front hall in the dark if I know it is the front hall, but suppose you set me down in the middle of it in the dark and not tell me which hall it is. How am I to know? Well, you've got to on the river. All right. Then I'm glad I never said anything to Mr. W. I should say so. Why, he'd have slammed you through the window and utterly ruined a hundred dollars' worth of window sash and stuff. I was glad this damage had been saved, for it would have made me unpopular with the owners. They always hated anybody who had the name of being careless and injuring things. I went to work now to learn the shape of the river and of all the eluding and ungraspable objects that ever tried to get mind or hands on, that was the chief. I would fasten my eyes upon a sharp-wooded point that projected far into the river some miles ahead of me, and go to laboriously photographing its shape upon my brain. And just as I was beginning to succeed to my satisfaction, we would draw up toward it, and the exasperating thing would begin to melt away and fold back into the bank. If there had been a conspicuous dead tree standing upon the very point of the cape, 
I would find that tree inconspicuously merged into the general forest and occupying the middle of a straight shore when I got abreast of it. No prominent hill would stick to its shape long enough for me to make up my mind what its form really was, but it was as dissolving and changeful as if it had been a mountain of butter in the hottest corner of the tropics. Nothing ever had the same shape when I was coming downstream that it had borne when I went up. I mentioned these little difficulties to Mr. B., and he said, "'That's the very main virtue of the thing. If the shapes didn't change every three seconds, they wouldn't be of any use. Take this place where we are now, for instance. As long as that hill over yonder is only one hill, I can boom right along the way I'm going. But the moment it splits at the top and forms a V, I know I've got to scratch to starboard in a hurry, or I'll bang this boat's brains out against a rock. And then the moment one of the prongs of the V swings behind the other, I've got to waltz to larboard again, or I'll have a misunderstanding with a snag that would snatch the keelsome out of the steamboat as neatly as if it were a silver in your hand. If that hill didn't change its shape on bad nights, there would be an awful steamboat graveyard around here inside of a year. It was plain that I had got to learn the shape of the river in all the different ways that could be thought of, upside down, wrong end first, inside out, fore and aft, and thought ships, and then know what to do on gray nights when it hadn't any shape at all. So I set about it. In the course of time I began to get the best of this naughty lesson, and my self-complacency moved to the front once more. Mr. B. was all fixed and ready to start it to the rear again. He opened on me after this fashion. How much water did we have in the middle crossing at hole-in-the-wall trip before last? I considered this an outrage. I said, Every trip, down and up, the leadsmen are singing through that tangled place for three-quarters of an hour on a stretch. How do you reckon I can remember such a mess as that? My boy, you've got to remember it. You've got to remember the exact spot and the exact marks the boat lay in when we had the shoalest water in every one of the two thousand shoal places between St. Louis and New Orleans. And you mustn't get the shoal soundings and marks of one trip mixed up with the shoal soundings and marks of another, either, or they're not often twice alike. You must keep them separate. When I came to myself again, I said, When I get so that I can do that, I'll be able to raise the dead, and then I won't have to pilot a steamboat in order to make a living. I want to retire from this business. I want a slush bucket and a brush. I'm only fit for a roustabout. I haven't got brains enough to be a pilot, and if I had, I wouldn't have strength enough to carry them around, unless I went on crutches. Now drop that. When I say I'll learn, note one, teach is not in the river vocabulary. A man the river, I mean it, and you can depend on it. I'll learn him or kill him. There was no use in arguing with a person like this. I promptly put such a strain on my memory that by and by even the shoal water and the countless crossing marks began to stay with me. But the result was just the same. I never could more than get one naughty thing learned before another presented itself. Now, I had often seen pilots gazing at the water and pretending to read it as if it were a book, but it was a book that told me nothing. A time came at last, however, when Mr. B. seemed to think me far enough advanced to bear a lesson on water reading. So he began. 
Do you see that long slanting line on the face of the water? Now that's a reef. Moreover, it's a bluff reef. There is a solid sandbar under it that is nearly as straight up and down as the side of a house. There is plenty of water close up to it, but mighty little on top of it. If you were to hit it, you would knock the boat's brains out. Do you see where the line fringes out at the upper end and begins to fade away? Yes, sir. Well, that is a low place. That is the head of the reef. You can climb over there and not hurt anything. Cross over now and follow along close under the reef. Easy water there, not much current. I followed the reef along till I approached the fringe end. Then Mr. B. said, Now get ready. Wait till I give the word. She won't want to mount the reef. A boat hates shoal water. Stand by. Wait. Wait. Keep her well in hand. Now cramp her down. Snatch her. Snatch her. He seized the other side of the wheel and helped to spin it around until it was hard down, and then we held it so. The boat resisted and refused to answer for a while, and she next came surging to starboard, mounted the reef, and sent a long, angry ridge of water foaming away from her bows. Now watch her. Watch her like a cat, or she'll get away from you. When she fights strong and the tiller slips a little, in a jerky, greasy sort of way, let up on her a trifle. It is the way she tells you at night that the water is too shoal. But keep edging her up, little by little, toward the point. You are well up on the bar now. There is a bar under every point, because the water that comes down around it forms an eddy and allows the sediment to sink. Do you see those fine lines on the face of the water that branch out like the ribs of a fan? Well, those are little reefs. You want to just miss the ends of them, but run them pretty close. Now look out! Look out! Don't you crowd that slick, greasy-looking place. There ain't nine feet there. She won't stand it. She begins to smell it. Look sharp, I tell you. Oh, blazes, there you go. Stop the starboard wheel. Quick! Ship up to the back. Set her back. The engine bells jingled, and the engines answered promptly, shooting white columns of steam far aloft out of the scape pipes. But it was too late. The boat had smelt the bar in good earnest. The foamy ridges that radiated from her bows suddenly disappeared. A great dead swell came rolling forward and swept ahead of her. She careened far over to larboard and went tearing away toward the other shore as if she were about scared to death. We were a good mile from where we ought to have been when we finally got the upper hand of her again. During the afternoon watch the next day, Mr. B. asked me if I knew how to run the next few miles. I said, Go inside the first snag above the point, outside the next one, start out from the lower end of Higgins' woodyard, make a square crossing, and that's all right. I'll be back before you can close up on the next point. But he wasn't. He was still below when I rounded it and entered upon a piece of water which I had some misgivings about. I did not know that he was hiding behind a chimney to see how I would perform. I went gaily along, getting prouder and prouder, for he had never left the boat in my sole charge such a length of time before. I even got to setting her and letting the wheel go entirely, while I vaingloriously turned my back, inspected the stern marks, and hummed a tune, a sort of easy indifference which I had prodigiously admired in B and other great pilots. Once I inspected rather long, and when I faced to the front again, my heart flew into my mouth so suddenly that if I hadn't clapped my teeth together I would have lost it. 
one of those frightful bluff reefs was stretching its deadly length right across our bows my head was gone in a moment i did not know which end i stood on i gasped and could not get my breath i spun the wheel down with such rapidity that it wove itself together like a spider's web the boat answered and turned square away from the reef but the reef followed her i fled and still it followed still it kept right across my bows i never looked to see where i was going i only fled the awful crash was imminent why didn't that villain come if i committed the crime of ringing a bell i might get thrown overboard but better that than kill the boat so in blind desperation i started such a rattling shivery down below as never had astounded an engineer in this world before i fancy amidst the frenzy of the bells the engines began to back and fill in a furious way and my reason forsook its throne for we were about to crash into the woods on the other side of the river just then mr b stepped calmly into view on the hurricane deck my soul went out to him in gratitude my distress vanished i would have felt safe on the brink of niagara with mr b on the hurricane deck he blandly and sweetly took his toothpick out of his mouth between his fingers as if it were a cigar we were just in the act of climbing an overhanging big tree and the passengers were scudding astern like rats and lifted up these commands to me ever so gently stop the starboard stop the larboard set her back on both the boat hesitated halted pressed her nose among the bows a critical instant then reluctantly began to back away stop the larboard come ahead on it stop the starboard come ahead on it pointer for the bar i sailed away as serenely as a summer's morning mr b came in and said with mock simplicity when you have a hail my boy you ought to tap the big bell three times before you land so that the engineers can get ready i blushed under the sarcasm and said i hadn't had any hail ah then it was for wood i suppose the officer of the watch will tell you when he wants to wood up i went on consuming and said i wasn't after wood indeed why what could you want over here in the bend then did you ever know of a boat following a bend upstream at this stage of the river no sir i wasn't trying to follow it i was getting away from a bluff reef no it wasn't a bluff reef there isn't one within three miles of where you were but i saw it it was as bluff as that one yonder just about run over it do you give it as an order yes run over it if i don't i, I wish i may die all right i'm taking the responsibility i was just as anxious to kill the boat now as i had been to save her before i impressed my orders upon my memory to be used at the inquest and made a straight break for the reef as it disappeared under our bows i held my breath but we slid over it like oil now don't you see the difference it wasn't anything but a wind reef the wind does that so i see but it is exactly like a bluff reef how am i ever going to tell them apart i can't tell you it is an instinct by and by you will just naturally know one from the other but you never will be able to explain why or how you know them apart it turned out to be true the face of the water in time became a wonderful book 
a book that was a dead language to the uneducated passenger, but which told its mind to me without reserve, delivering its most cherished secrets as clearly as if it uttered them with a voice. It was not a book to be read once and thrown aside, for it had a new story to tell every day. Throughout the long twelve hundred miles there was never a page that was void of interest, never one that you could leave unread without loss, never one that you would want to skip, thinking you could find higher enjoyment in some other thing. There never was so wonderful a book written by man, never one whose interest was so absorbing, so unflagging, so sparklingly renewed with every reperusal. The passenger who could not read it was charmed with a peculiar sort of faint dimple on its surface, on the rare occasions when he did not overlook it altogether. But to the pilot that was an italicized passage. Indeed, it was more than that. It was a legend of the largest capitals with a string of shouting exclamation points at the end of it, for it meant that a wreck or a rock was buried there that could tear the life out of the strongest vessel that ever floated. It is the faintest and simplest expression the water ever makes, and the most hideous to the pilot's eye. In truth, the passenger who could not read this book saw nothing but all manner of pretty pictures in it, painted by the sun and shaded by the clouds, whereas to the trained eye these were not pictures at all but the grimmest and most dead earnest of reading matter. Now when I had mastered the language of this water, and had come to know every trifling feature that bordered the great river as familiarly as I knew the letters of the alphabet, I had made a valuable acquisition. But I had lost something, too. I had lost something which could never be restored to me while I lived. All the grace, the beauty, the poetry had gone out of the majestic river. I still keep in mind a certain wonderful sunset which I witnessed when steamboating was new to me. A broad expanse of the river was turned to blood. In the middle distance the red hue brightened into gold, through which a solitary log came floating, black and conspicuous. In one place a long, slanting mark lay sparkling upon the water. In another the surface was broken by boiling, tumbling rings that were as many tinted as an opal. Where the ruddy flush was faintest was a smooth spot that was covered with graceful circles and radiating lines ever so delicately traced. The shore on our left was densely wooded, and the somber shadow that fell from this forest was broken in one place by a long ruffled trail that shone like silver, and high above the forest wall a clean-stemmed dead tree waved a single leafy bough that glowed like a flame in the unobstructed splendor that was glowing from the sun. There were graceful curves, reflected images, woody heights, soft distances, and over the whole scene, far and near, the dissolving lights drifted steadily, enriching it, every passing moment, with new marvels of coloring. I stood like one bewitched. I drank it in, in a speechless rapture. The world was new to me, and I had never seen anything like this at home. But, as I have said, a day came when I began to cease noting the glories and the charms which the moon and the sun and the twilight wrought upon the river's face. Another day came when I ceased altogether to note them. Then, if that sunset scene had been repeated, I would have looked upon it without rapture, and would have commented upon it, inwardly, after this fashion. This sun means that we are going to have wind tomorrow. 
That floating log means that the river is rising. Small thanks to it. That slanting mark on the water refers to a bluff reef which is going to kill somebody's steamboat one of these nights, if it keeps on stretching out like that. Those tumbling boils show a dissolving bar and a changing channel there. The lines and the circles in the slick water over yonder are a warning that that execrable place is shoaling up dangerously. That silver streak in the shadow of the forest is the break from a new snag, and he has located himself in the very best place he could have found to fish for steamboats. That tall dead tree with a single living branch is not going to last long. And then how is a body ever going to get through this blind place at night without the friendly old landmark? No, the romance and the beauty were all gone from the river. All the value any feature of it had for me now was the amount of usefulness it could furnish toward compassing the safe piloting of a steamboat. Since those days I have pitied doctors from my heart. What does the lovely flush in a beauty's cheek mean to a doctor but a break that ripples above some deadly disease are not all her visible charms sown thick with what are to him the signs and symbols of hidden decay does he ever see her beauty at all or doesn't he simply view her professionally and comment upon her unwholesome condition all to himself and doesn't he sometimes wonder whether he has gained most or lost most by learning his trade End of chapter 3、This is section 4 of Old Times on the Mississippi. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Old Times on the Mississippi by Mark Twain. Chapter 4 The Cub Pilot's Education Nearly Completed. Whosoever has done me the courtesy to read my chapters which have preceded this may possibly wonder that I deal so minutely with piloting as a science. It was the prime purpose of these articles, and I am not quite done yet. I wish to know, in the most patient and painstaking way, what a wonderful science it is. Ship channels are buoyed and lighted. And therefore, it is a comparatively easy undertaking to learn to run them. Clear water rivers with gravel bottoms change their channels very gradually, and therefore one needs to learn them but once. But piloting becomes another matter when you apply it to vast streams like the Mississippi and the Missouri, whose alluvial banks cave and change constantly, whose snags are always hunting up new quarters. Whose sandbars are never at rest, whose channels are forever dodging and shirking, and whose obstructions must be confronted in all nights and all weathers without the aid of a single lighthouse or a single buoy. For there is neither light nor buoy to be found anywhere in all this three or four thousand miles of villainous river. I feel justified in enlarging upon this great science for the reason that I feel sure. No one has ever yet written a paragraph about it who had piloted a steamboat himself, and so had a practical knowledge of the subject. If the theme were hackneyed, I should be obliged to deal gently with the reader, but since it is wholly new, I have felt at liberty to take up a considerable degree of room with it. When I had learned the name and position of every visible feature of the river, when I had so mastered its shape, 
that I could shut my eyes and trace it from St. Louis to New Orleans, and when I had learned to read the face of the water as one would cull the news from the morning paper, and, finally, when I had trained my dull memory to treasure up an endless array of soundings and crossing marks, and keep fast hold of them, I judged that my education was complete. So I got to tilting my cap to the side of my head, and wearing a toothpick in my mouth at the wheel. Mr. B. had his eye on these airs. One day he said, "'What is the height of that bank yonder at Burgess's?' "'How can I tell, sir? It is three-quarters of a mile away.' "'Very poor eye, very poor. Take the glass.' I took the glass, and presently said, "'I can't tell. I suppose that that bank is about a foot and a half high.' "'Foot and a half. That's a six-foot bank. How high was the bank along here last trip?' "'I don't know. I never noticed.' "'You didn't. Well, you must always do it hereafter.' Why? Because you'll have to know a good many things that it tells you. For one thing, it tells you the stage of the river. It tells you whether there's more water or less in the river along here than there was last trip. The leads tell me that. I rather thought I had the advantage of him there. Yes, but suppose the leads lie. The bank would tell you so. Then you'd stir those leadsmen up a bit. There was a ten-foot bank here last trip, and there's only a six-foot bank now. What does that signify? That the river is four feet higher than it was last trip. Very good. Is the river rising or falling? Rising. No, it ain't. I guess I am right, sir. Yonder is some driftwood floating down the stream. A rise starts the driftwood, but then it keeps on floating a while after the river is done rising. Now the bank will tell you about this. Wait till you come to a place where it shelves a little. Now here— you see this narrow belt of fine sediment? That was deposited while the water was higher. You see, the driftwood begins to strand, too. The bank helps in other ways. Do you see that stump on the false point? Aye, aye, sir. Well, the water is just up to those roots of it. You must make a note of that. Why? Because that means that there's seven feet in the chute of 103. But 103 is a long way up the river yet. That's where the benefit of the bank comes in. There is water enough in 103 now, yet there may not be by the time we get there, but the bank will keep us posted all along. You don't run close chutes on a falling river upstream, and there are precious few of them you are allowed to run at all downstream. There's a law of the United States against it. The river may be rising by the time we get to 103, and in that case we'll run it. We are drawing how much? Six feet aft, six and a half forward. Well, you do seem to know something. But what I particularly want to know is if I have to keep up an everlasting measuring of the banks of this river twelve hundred miles, month in and month out. Of course. My emotions were too deep for words for a while. Presently I said, And how about these chutes? Are there many of them? I should say so. I fancy we shan't run any of the river this trip as you've ever seen it run before, so to speak. If the river begins to rise again, we'll go up behind bars that you've always seen standing out of the river, high and dry like the roof of a house. We'll cut across low places that you've never noticed at all, right through the middle of bars that cover fifty acres of river. We'll creep through cracks where you've always thought was solid land." 
We'll dart through the woods and leave twenty-five miles of river off to one side. We'll see the hind side of every island between New Orleans and Cairo. Then I've got to go to work and learn just as much more river as I already know. Just about twice as much more, as near as you can come at it. Well, one lives to find out. I think I was a fool when I went into this business. Yes, that is true. And you are yet. But you'll not be when you've learned it. I never can learn it. I will see that you do. By and by I ventured again. Have I got to learn all this thing, just as I know the rest of the river, shapes and all, and, and so I can run it at night? Yes. And you've got to have good fair marks from one end of the river to the other that will help the bank tell you when there is water enough in each of these countless places, like that stump, you know. When the river first begins to rise, you can run half a dozen of the deepest of them. When it rises a foot more, you can run another dozen. The next foot will add a couple of dozen, and so on. So you see, you have to know your banks and marks to a dead moral certainty, and never get them mixed. For when you start through one of those cracks, there's no backing out again, as there is in the big river. You've got to go through, or stay there six months if you get caught on a falling river. There are about fifty of these cracks which you can't run at all except when the river is brimful and over the banks. This new lesson is a cheerful prospect. Cheerful enough. And mind what I've just told you. When you start into one of those places, you got to go through. They are too narrow to turn round in, too crooked to back out of, and the shoal water is always up at the head, never elsewhere. And the head of them is always likely to be filling up, little by little, so that the marks you reckon their depth by, this season, may not answer for next. Learn a new set, then, every year? Exactly. Cramp her up to the bar! What are you standing up through the middle of the river for? The next few months showed me strange things. On the same day that we held the conversation above narrated, we met a great rise coming down the river. The whole vast face of the stream was black with drifting dead logs, broken boughs, and great trees that had caved in and been washed away. It required the nicest steering to pick one's way through this rushing raft, even in the daytime, when crossing from point to point. And at night the difficulty was mightily increased. Every now and then a huge log lying deep in the water would suddenly appear right under our bows, coming head-on, no use to try to avoid it then. We could only stop the engines, and one wheel would walk over that log from one end to the other, keeping up a thundering racket and careening the boat in a way that was very uncomfortable to passengers. Now and then we would hit one of these sunken logs a rattling bang dead in the center with a full head of steam, and it would stun the boat as if she had hit a continent. Sometimes this log would lodge and stay right across our nose and back the Mississippi up before it. We would have to do a little crawfishing then to get away from the obstruction. We often hit white logs in the dark, for we could not see them till we were right on them. But a black log is a pretty distinct object at night. A white snag is an ugly customer when the daylight is gone. Of course, on the great rise, down came a swarm of prodigious timber rafts from the headwaters of the Mississippi, 
coal barges from Pittsburgh, little trading scows from everywhere, and broad horns from Posey County, Indiana, freighted with fruit and furniture, the usual term for describing it, though in plain English the freight thus aggrandized was hoop-holes and pumpkins. Pilots bore a mortal hatred to these craft, and it was returned with a usury. The law required all such helpless traders to keep a light burning, but it was a law that was often broken. All of a sudden, on a murky night, a light would hop up right under our bows almost, and an agonized voice, with the backwoods wang to it, would wail out, "'Where the you going to? Can't you see nothing, you dash-dashed, ag-sucking, sheep-stealing, one-eyed son-of-a-stuffed monkey?' Then for an instant, as we whistled by, the red glare from our furnaces would reveal the scow and the form of the gesticulating orator as if under a lightning flash, and in that instant our firemen and deckhands would send and receive a tempest of missiles and profanity. One of our wheels would walk off with the crashing fragments of a steering oar, and down the dead blackness would shut again. And that flat boatman would be sure to go into New Orleans and sue our boat, swearing stoutly that he had a light burning all the time, when in truth his gang had the lantern down below, to sing and lie and drink and gamble by, and no watch on deck. Once at night, in one of those forest-bordered crevices behind an island, which steamboatmen intensely describe with a phrase, as dark as the inside of a cow, we should have eaten up a Posey County family, fruit, furniture, and all, but that they happened to be fiddling down below, and we just caught the sound of the music in time to shear off, doing no serious damage, unfortunately, but coming so near it that we had good hopes for a moment. These people brought up their lantern then, of course, and as we backed and filled to get away, the precious family stood in the light of it, both sexes and various ages, and cursed us till everything turned blue. Once a coal boatman sent a bullet through our pilot house when we borrowed a steering oar of him in a very narrow place. During this big rise these small fry craft were an intolerable nuisance. We were running chute after chute, a new world to me, and if there was a particularly cramped place in a chute, we were pretty sure to meet a broad horn there, and if he failed to be there, we would find him in a still worse locality, namely, the head of the chute on the shoal water, and then there would be no end of profane cordialities exchanged. Sometimes in the big river, when we would be feeling our way cautiously along through a fog, the deep hush would suddenly be broken by yells and a crammer of tin pans, and all in an instant a log raft would appear vaguely through the webby veil close upon us and then we did not wait to swap knives, but snatched our engine-bells out by the roots and piled on all the steam we had to scramble out of the way. One doesn't hit a rock or a solid log raft with a steamboat when he can get excused. You will hardly believe it, but many steamboat clerks always carried a large assortment of religious tracts with them in those old departed steamboating days. Indeed they did. Twenty times a day we would be cramping up around a bar while a string of these small fry rascals were drifting down into the head of the bend, away above and beyond us a couple of miles. Now a skiff would dart away from one of them and come fighting its laborious way across the desert of water. It would ease all in the shadow of our forecastle, and the panting oarman would shout, "'Give me a paper!' as the skiff drifted swiftly astern. 
the clerk would throw over a file of New Orleans journals. If these were picked up without comment, you might notice that now a dozen other skiffs had been drifting down upon us without saying anything. You understand, they had been waiting to see how number one was going to fare. Number one making no comment, all the rest would bend to their oars and come on now. And as fast as they came, the clerk would heave over neat bundles of religious tracts tied to shingles. The amount of hard swearing which twelve packages of religious literature will command when impartially divided up among twelve raftsmen's crews, who have pulled a heavy skiff two miles on a hot day to get them, is simply incredible. As I have said, the big rise brought a new world under my vision. By the time the river was over its banks, we had forsaken our old paths and were hourly climbing over bars that had stood ten feet out of the water before. We were shaving stumpy shores, like that at the foot of Madrid Bend, which I had always seen avoided before. We were clattering through chutes like that of eighty-two, where the opening at the foot was an unbroken wall of timber till our nose was almost at the very spot. Some of these chutes were utter solitudes. The dense, untouched forest overhung both banks of the crooked little crack, and one could believe that human creatures had never intruded there before. The swinging grapevines, the grassy nooks and vistas glimpsed as we swept by, the flowering creepers waving their red blossoms from the tops of dead trunks, and all the spendthrift richness of the forest foliage were wasted and thrown away there. The chutes were lovely places to steer in. They were deep except at the head. The current was gentle. Under the points the water was absolutely dead, and the invisible bank so bluff that where the tender willow thickets projected, you could bury your boat's broadside in them as you tore along, and then you seemed fairly to fly. Behind other islands we found wretched little farms and wretcheder little log cabins. There were crazy rail fences sticking a foot or two above the water, with one or two jeans-clad, chills-racked, yellow-faced male miserables roosting on the top rail, elbows on knees, jaws in hands, grinding tobacco and discharging the result at floating chips through crevices left by lost milk-teeth, while the rest of the family and the few farm animals were huddled together in an empty wood-flat, riding at her moorings close at hand. In this flat boat the family would have to cook and eat and sleep for a lesser or greater number of days, or possibly weeks, until the river should fall two or three feet and let them get back to their log cabin and their chills again chills being a merciful provision of an all-wise providence to enable them to take exercise without exertion. And this sort of watery camping out was a thing which these people were rather liable to be treated to a couple of times a year, by the December rise out of the Ohio, and the June rise out of the Mississippi. And yet these were the kindly dispensations, for they at least enabled the poor things to rise from the dead now and then, and look upon life when a steamboat went by. They appreciated the blessing, too, for they spread their mouths and eyes wide open and made the most of these occasions. Now what could these banished creatures find to do to keep from dying of the blues during the low-water season? Once in one of these lovely island chutes we found our course completely bridged by a great fallen tree. This will serve to show how narrow some of the chutes were. The passengers had an hour's recreation in a virgin wilderness, while the boat-hands chopped the bridge away, for there was no such thing as turning back, you comprehend. 
from Cairo to Baton Rouge, when the river is over its banks, you have no particular trouble in the night, for the thousand-mile wall of dense forest that guards the two banks all the way is only gapped with a farm or woodyard opening at intervals, and so you can't get out of the river much easier than you could get out of a fenced lane. But from Baton Rouge to New Orleans, it is a different matter. The river is more than a mile wide and very deep, as much as two hundred feet in places. Both banks, for a good deal over a hundred miles, are shorn of their timber and bordered by continuous sugar plantations, with only here and there a scattering sapling or row of ornamental china trees. The timber is shorn off clear to the rear of the plantations from two to four miles. When the first frost threatens to come, the planters snatch off their crops in a hurry. When they have finished grinding the cane, they form the refuse of the stalks, which they call bagas, into great piles and set fire to them, though in other sugar countries the bagas is used for fuel in the furnaces of the sugar mills. Now, the piles of damp bagas burn slowly and smoke like Satan's own kitchen. An embankment ten or fifteen feet high guards both banks of the Mississippi all the way down that lower end of the river, and this embankment is set back from the edge of the shore from ten to perhaps a hundred feet, according to circumstances. Say thirty or forty feet is a general thing. Fill that whole region with an impenetrable gloom of smoke from a hundred miles of burning bagasse piles, when the river is over the banks, and turn a steamboat loose along there at midnight, and see how she will feel. And see how you will feel, too. You find yourself away out in the midst of a vague, dim sea that is shoreless, that fades out and loses itself in the murky distances, for you cannot discern the thin rim of embankment, and you are always imagining you see a straggling tree when you don't. The plantations themselves are transformed by the smoke and look like a part of the sea. All through your watch you are tortured with the exquisite misery of uncertainty. You hope you are keeping in the river, but you do not know. All that you are sure about is that you are likely to be within six feet of the bank and destruction when you think you are a good half-mile from shore. And you are sure, also, that if you chance suddenly to fetch up against the embankment and topple your chimneys overboard, you will have the small comfort of knowing that it is about what you were expecting to do. One of the great Vicksburg packets darted into a sugar plantation one night at such a time, and had to stay there a week. But there was no novelty about it. It had often been done before. I thought I had finished this number, but I wish to add a curious thing while it is in my mind. It is only relevant in that it is connected with piloting, there used to be an excellent pilot on the river, Mr. X, who was a somnambulist. It was said that if his mind was troubled about a bad piece of river, he was pretty sure to get up and walk in his sleep and do strange things. He was once fellow pilot for a trip or two with George E. on a great New Orleans passenger packet. During a considerable part of the first trip, George was uneasy, but got over it by and by, as X seemed content to stay in his bed when asleep. Late one night the boat was approaching Helena, Arkansas. The water was low, and the crossings above the town in a very blind and tangled condition. X had seen the crossing since E had, and as the night was particularly drizzly, sullen, and dark, E was considering whether he had not better have X called to assist in running the place, 
when the door opened and X walked in. Now, on very dark nights, light is a deadly enemy to piloting. You are aware, if you stand in a lighted room on such a night, you cannot see things in the street to any purpose. But if you put out the lights and stand in the gloom, you can make out objects in the street pretty well. So, on very dark nights, pilots do not smoke. They allow no fire in the pilot house stove if there is a crack which can allow the least ray to escape. They order the furnaces to be curtained with huge tarpaulins, and the skylights to be closely blinded. Then no light whatever issues from the boat. The undefinable shape that now entered the pilot house had Mr. X's voice. This said, "'Let me take her, Mr. E. I've seen this place since you have, and it is so crooked that I reckon I can run it myself easier than I could tell you how to do it.' "'It is kind of you, and I swear I am willing. I haven't got another drop of perspiration left in me. I have been spinning around and around the wheel like a squirrel. It is so dark I can't tell which way she is swinging till she is coming around like a whirligig.' So E took a seat on the bench, panting and breathless. The black phantom assumed the wheel, without saying anything, steadied the waltzing steamer with a turn or two, and then stood at ease coaxing her a little to this side and then to that as gently and as sweetly as if the time had been noonday. When E. observed this marvel of steering, he wished he had not confessed. He stared and wondered and finally said, "'Well, I thought I knew how to steer a steamboat, but that was another mistake of mine.' X. said nothing, but went serenely on with his work. He rang for the leads. He rang to slow down the steam." He worked the boat carefully and neatly into invisible marks, then stood at the center of the wheel and peered blandly out into the blackness, fore and aft, to verify his position. As the leads shoaled more and more, he stopped the engines entirely, and the dead silence and suspense of drifting followed. When the shoalest water was struck, he cracked on the steam, carried her handsomely over, and then began to work her warily into the next system of shoal marks. The same patient, heedful use of leads and engines followed. The boat slipped through without touching bottom, and entered upon the third and last intricacy of the crossing. Imperceptibly she moved through the gloom, crept by inches into her marks, drifted tediously till the shoalest water was cried, and then, under a tremendous head of steam, went swinging over the reef and away into deep water and safety. E. let his long-pent breath pour out in a great relieving sigh, and said, "'That's the sweetest piece of piloting that was ever done on the Mississippi River. I wouldn't have believed it could be done if I hadn't seen it.' There was no reply, and he added, "'Just hold her five minutes longer, partner, and let me run down and get a cup of coffee.' A minute later E. was biting into a pie down in the Texas and comforting himself with coffee. Just then the night watchman happened in, and was about to happen out again when he noticed E, and exclaimed, "'Who is at the wheel, sir?' X. "'Dart for the pilot-house quicker than lightning!' The next moment both men were flying up the pilot-house companionway three steps at a jump. Nobody there. The great steamer was whistling down the middle of the river at her own sweet will. The watchman shot out of the place again. E seized the wheel, set an engine back with power, and held his breath while the boat reluctantly swung away from a towhead 
which she was about to knock into the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. By and by the watchman came back and said, "'Didn't that lunatic tell you he was asleep when he first came up here?' "'No.' "'Well, it was. I found him walking along on top of the railings, just as unconcerned as another man would walk of pavement. And I put him to bed. Now, just this minute there he was again, away astern, going through that sort of tight-rope deviltry the same as before.' "'Well, I think I'll stay by next time he has one of those fits.' but I hope you'll have them often. You just ought to have seen him take this boat through Helena Crossing. I never saw anything so gaudy before. And if he can do such gold-leaf, kid-glove, diamond-breastpin piloting when he's sound asleep, what couldn't he do if he was dead? End of chapter 4「This is section 5 of Old Times on the Mississippi. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Old Times on the Mississippi by Mark Twain. Chapter 5. Sounding. Faculties peculiarly necessary to a pilot. When the river is very low, and one steamboat is drawing all the water there is in the channel, or a few inches more, as was often the case in the old times, one must be painfully circumspect in his piloting. We used to have to sound a number of particularly bad places almost every trip when the river was at a very low stage. Sounding is done in this way. The boat ties up at the shore, just above the shoal crossing. The pilot, not on watch, takes his cub or steersman and a picked crew of men, sometimes an officer also, and goes out in the yawl, provided the boat has not that rare and sumptuous luxury a regularly devised sounding boat and proceeds to hunt the best water, the pilot on duty watching movements through a spyglass meantime, and some instances assisting by signals of the boat's whistle signifying try higher up or try lower down, for the surface of the water, like an oil painting, is more expressive and intelligible when inspected from a little distance than very close at hand. The whistle signals are seldom necessary, however, Never, perhaps, except when the wind confuses the significant ripples upon the water's surface. When the yawl has reached the shoal place, the speed is slackened. The pilot begins to sound the depth with a pole ten or twelve feet long, and the steersman at the tiller obeys the order to hold her up to starboard, or let her fall off to larboard. Note 1. The term larboard is never used at sea now to signify the left hand, but was always used on the river in my time. Or... Steady, steady as you go. When the measurements indicate that the yawl is approaching the shoalest part of the reef, the command is given to ease all. Then the men stop rowing, and the yawl drifts with the current. The next order is, stand by with the buoy. The moment the shallowest point is reached, the pilot delivers the order, let go of the buoy, and over she goes. If the pilot is not satisfied, he sounds the place again. If he finds better water higher up or lower down, he removes the buoy to that place. Being finally satisfied, he gives the order, and all the men stand their oars straight up in the air in line. A blast from the boat's whistle indicate that the signal has been seen. Then the men give way on their oars and lay the yawl alongside the buoy. The steamer comes creeping carefully down, is pointed straight at the buoy, husbands her power for the coming struggle, and presently, at the critical moment, 
turns on all her steam and goes grinding and wallowing over the buoy and the sand and gains the deep water beyond. Or maybe she doesn't. Maybe she strikes and swings. Then she has to while away several hours, or days, sparring herself off. Sometimes a buoy is not laid at all, but the yawl goes ahead, hunting the best water, and the steamer follows along in its wake. Often there is a deal of fun and excitement about sounding, especially if it is a glorious summer day, or a blustering night. But in winter the cold and the peril take most of the fun out of it. A buoy is nothing but a board four or five feet long, with one end turned up. It is a reversed bootjack. It is anchored on the shoalest part of the reef by a rope with a heavy stone made fast to the end of it. But for the resistance of the turned-up end, the current would pull the buoy under water. At night a paper lantern with a candle in it is fastened on top of the buoy, and this can be seen a mile or more, a little glimmering spark in the waste of blackness. Nothing delights a cub so much as an opportunity to go out sounding. There is such an air of adventure about it. Often there is danger. It is so gaudy and man-of-war-like to sit up in the stern-sheets and steer a swift yawl. There is something fine about the exultant spring of the boat when an experienced old sailor crew throw their souls into the oars. It is lovely to see the white foam stream away from the bows. There is music in the rush of the water. It is deliciously exhilarating in summer to go speeding over the breezy expanses of the river when the world of wavelets is dancing in the sun. It is such grandeur, too, to the cub, to get a chance to give an order, for often the pilot will simply say, Let her go about, and leave the rest to the cub, who instantly cries in his sternest tone of command, Ease starboard! Strong on the larboard! Starboard give way! With a will, men! The cub enjoys sounding for the further reason that the eyes of the passengers are watching all the yawl's movements with absorbing interest, if the time be daylight, and if it be night, he knows that those same wondering eyes are fastened upon the yawl's lantern as it glides out into the gloom and fades away in the remote distance. One trip a pretty girl of sixteen spent her time in our pilot-house with her uncle and aunt, every day and all day long. I fell in love with her. So did Mr. T.'s cub, Tom G. Tom and I had been bosom friends until this time, but now a coolness began to arise. I told the girl a good many of my river adventures and made myself out a good deal of a hero. Tom tried to make himself appear to be a hero, too, and succeeded to some extent, but then he always had a way of embroidering. However, virtue is its own reward, so I was a barely perceptible trifle ahead in the contest. About this time something happened which promised handsomely for me. The pilots decided to sound the crossing at the head of twenty-one. This would occur at nine or ten o'clock at night, when the passengers would be still up. It would be Mr. T.'s watch, therefore my chief would have to do the sounding. We had a perfect love of a sounding boat, long, trim, graceful, and as fleet as a greyhound. Her thwarps were cushioned. She carried twelve oarsmen. One of the mates was always sent in her to transmit orders to her crew, for ours was a steamer where no end of style was put on. We tied up at the shore above twenty-one and got ready. It was a foul night, and the river was so wide there that a landsman's uneducated eyes 
could discern no opposite shore through such a gloom. The passengers were alert and interested. Everything was satisfactory. As I hurried through the engine-room, picturesquely gotten up in storm-toggery, I met Tom, and could not forbear delivering myself of a mean speech. "'Ain't you glad you don't have to go out sounding?' Tom was passing on, but he quickly turned and said, "'Now, just for that, you can go and get the sounding-pole yourself. I was going after it, but I'd see you in Halifax now before I'd do it. Who wants to go get it? I don't. It's in the sounding-boat. It ain't either. It's been new-painted, and it's been up on the ladies' cabin guards two days drying.' I flew back, and shortly arrived among the crowd of watching and wondering ladies just in time to hear the command, "'Give way, men!' I looked over, and there was the gallant sounding boat booming away, the unprincipled Tom presiding at the tiller, and my chief sitting by him with a sounding-pole which I had been sent on a fool's errand to fetch. Then that young girl said to me, "'Oh, how awful to have to go out in that little boat on such a night! Do you think there is any danger?' I would rather have been stabbed. I went off full of venom to help in the pilot-house. By and by the boat's lantern disappeared, and after an interval a wee spark glimmered upon the face of the water a mile away. Mr. T. blew the whistle. In acknowledgment, backed the steamer out and made for it. We flew along for a while, then slackened steam and went cautiously gliding toward the spark. Presently Mr. T. exclaimed, "'Hello! The buoy-lantern's out!' He stopped the engines. A moment or two later he said, "'Why, there it is again!' So he came ahead on the engines once more, and rang for the leads. Gradually the water shoaled up, and then began to deepen again. Mr. T. muttered, "'Well, I don't understand this. I believe that buoy has drifted off the reef. Seems to be a little too far to the left. No matter. It is safest to run over it anyhow.' So, in that solid world of darkness, we went creeping down on the light. Just as our bows were in the act of plowing over it, Mr. T. seized the bell-ropes, rang a startling peal, and exclaimed, "'My soul! It's the sounding-boat!' A sudden chorus of wild alarms burst out far below. A pause, then a sound of grinding and crashing followed. Mr. T. exclaimed, "'There! The paddle-wheel has ground the sounding-boat to lucifer matches. Run!' See who is killed. I was on the main deck in the twinkling of an eye. My chief and the third mate and nearly all the men were safe. They had discovered their danger when it was too late to pull out of the way. Then, when the great guards overshadowed them a moment later, they were prepared and knew what to do. At my chief's order they sprang at the right instant, seized the guard, and were hauled aboard. The next moment the sounding yawl swept aft to the wheel and was struck and splintered to atoms. Two of the men and the cub Tom were missing, a fact which spread like wildfire over the boat. The passengers came flocking to the forward gangway, ladies and all, anxious-eyed, white-faced, and talked in awed voices of the dreadful thing. And often and again I heard them say, "'Poor fellows! Poor boy! Poor boy!' By this time the boat's yawl was manned and away to search for the missing." Now a faint call was heard off to the left. The yawl had disappeared in the other direction. Half the people rushed to one side to encourage the swimmer with their shouts. The other half rushed the other way to shriek to the yawl to turn about. By the callings, the swimmer was approaching, 
but some said the sound showed failing strength. The crowd massed themselves against the boiler-deck railings, leaning over and staring into the gloom, and every faint and fainter cry wrung from them such words as, "'Ah, poor fellow, poor fellow, is there no way to save him?' But still the cries held out and drew nearer, and presently the voice said pluckily, "'I can make it. Stand by with a rope!' What a rousing cheer they gave him! The chief mate took his stand in the glare of the torch-basket, a coil of rope in his hand, and his men grouped about him. The next moment the swimmer's face appeared in the circle of light, and in another one the owner of it was hauled aboard, limp and drenched, while cheer on cheer went up. It was that devil Tom. The yawl crew searched everywhere, but found no sign of the two men. They probably failed to catch the guard, tumbled back, and were struck by the wheel and killed. Tom had never jumped for the guard at all, but had plunged headfirst into the river and dived under the wheel. It was nothing. I could have done it easy enough, and I said so. But everybody went on just the same, making a wonderful to-do over that ass, as if he had done something great. That girl couldn't seem to have enough of that pitiful hero the rest of the trip. But little I cared, I loathed her anyway. The way we came to mistake the sounding-boat's lantern for the buoy-light was this. My chief said that, after laying the buoy, he fell away and watched it till it seemed to be secure. Then he took up a position a hundred yards below it, and a little to one side of the steamer's course, headed the sounding-boat upstream, and waited. Having to wait some time, he and the officer got to talking. He looked up when he judged that the steamer was about on the reef, saw that the buoy was gone, but supposed that the steamer had already run over it. He went on with his talk. He noticed that the steamer was getting very close down on him, but that was the correct thing. But it was her business to shave him closely, for convenience in taking him aboard. He was expecting her to shear off until the last moment, then it flashed upon him that she was trying to run him down, mistaking his lantern for the buoy light. So he sang out, "'Stand by to spring for the guard, men!' And in the next instant the jump was made." But I am wandering from what I was intending to do, that is, make plainer than perhaps appears in my previous papers, some of the peculiar requirements of the science of piloting. First of all, there is one faculty which a pilot must incessantly cultivate until he has brought it to absolute perfection. Nothing short of perfection will do. That faculty is memory. He cannot stop with merely thinking a thing as so-and-so. He must know it. For this is eminently one of the exact sciences. With what scorn a pilot was looked upon in the old times, if he ever ventured to deal in that feeble phrase, I think, instead of the vigorous one, I know. One cannot easily realize what a tremendous thing it is to know every trivial detail of twelve hundred miles of river, and know it with absolute exactness. If you will take the longest street in New York, and travel up and down it, conning its features patiently until you know every house and window and door and lamp-post and big and little sign by art, and know them so accurately that you can instantly name the one you are abreast of when you are set down at random in that street in the middle of an inky black night, you will then have a tolerable notion of the amount and the exactness of a pilot's knowledge who carries the Mississippi River in his head." And then, if you will go on until you know every street crossing, the character, size, and position of the crossing stones, 
and the varying depth of mud in each of those numberless places, you will have some idea of what the pilot must know in order to keep a Mississippi steamer out of trouble. Next, if you will take half of the signs in that long street, and change their places once a month, and still manage to know their new positions accurately on dark nights, and keep up with these repeated changes without making any mistakes, you will understand what is required of a pilot's peerless memory by the fickle Mississippi. I think a pilot's memory is about the most wonderful thing in the world. To know the Old and New Testaments by heart, and be able to recite them glibly, forward or backward, or begin at random anywhere in the book, and recite both ways, and never trip or make a mistake, is no extravagant mass of knowledge, and no marvelous facility, compared to a pilot's massed knowledge of the Mississippi, and his marvelous facility in the handling of it. I make this comparison deliberately, and I believe I am not expanding the truth when I do it. Many will think my figure too strong, but pilots will not. And how easily and comfortably the pilot's memory does its work! How placidly effortless is its way! How unconsciously it lays up its vast stores, hour by hour, day by day, and never loses or mislays a single valuable package of them all! Take an instance. Let a leadsman cry, Half twain! Half twain! Half twain! Half twain! Half twain! until it becomes as monotonous as the ticking of a clock. Let conversation be going on all the time, and the pilot be doing his share of the talking, and no longer listening to the leadsman, and in the midst of this endless string of half-twains, let a single quarter-twain be interjected without emphasis, and then the half-twain cry go on again, just as before. Two or three weeks later, that pilot can describe with precision the boat's position in the river, when that quarter-twain was uttered, and give you such a lot of head-marks, stern-marks, and side-marks to guide you, that you ought to be able to take the boat there, and put her in at that same spot again yourself. The cry of quarter-twain did not really take his mind from his talk, but his trained faculties instantly photographed the bearings, noted the change of depth, and laid up the important details for future reference without requiring any assistance from him in the matter. If you were walking and talking with a friend, and another friend at your side kept up a monotonous repetition of the vowel sound A for a couple of blocks, and then in the midst interjected an R, thus A, 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 R, A, 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 etc., and gave the R no emphasis, you would not be able to state two or three weeks afterward that the R had been put in, nor be able to tell what objects you were passing at the moment it was done. But you could if your memory had been patiently and laboriously trained to do that sort of thing mechanically. Give a man a tolerably fair memory to start with, and piloting will develop it into a very colossus of capability, but only in the matters it is daily drilled in. A time would come when the man's faculties could not help noticing landmarks and soundings, and his memory could not help holding on to them with the grip of a vice. But if you asked that same man at noon what he had for breakfast, it would be ten chances to one that he could not tell you. Astonishing things can be done with the human memory if you will devote it faithfully to one particular line of business. At the time that wages soared so high on the Missouri River, my chief, Mr. B., 
went up there and learned more than a thousand miles of that stream with an ease and rapidity that were astonishing. When he had seen each division once in the daytime and once at night, his education was so nearly complete that he took out a daylight license. A few trips later he took out a full license and went to piloting day and night, and he ranked A-1, too. Mr. B. placed me as steersman for a while under a pilot whose feats of memory were a constant marvel to me. However, his memory was born in him, I think, not built. For instance, somebody would mention a name. Instantly Mr. J. would break in, "'Oh, I knew him! Sallow-faced, red-headed fellow, with a little scar on the side of his throat like a splinter under the flesh. He was only in the southern trade six months. That was thirteen years ago. I made a trip with him.' There was five feet in the upper river then. The Henry Blake grounded at the foot of Tower Island, drawing four and a half, and George Elliott unshipped her rudder on the wreck of the Sunflower. Why, the Sunflower didn't sink until— I know when she sunk. It was three years before that, on the 2nd of December. Asa Hardy was captain of her, and his brother John was first clerk, and it was his first trip in her, too. Tom Jones told me these things a week afterward in New Orleans. He was first mate of the Sunflower. Captain Hardy stuck a nail in his foot the 6th of July of the next year, and died of the lockjaw on the 15th. His brother John died two years after, 3rd of March, Erisipolis. I never saw either of the Hardys. They were Allegheny River men, but people who knew them told me all these things. And they said Captain Hardy wore yarn socks, winter and summer, just the same, and his first wife's name was Jane Shook. She was from New England, and his second one died in a lunatic asylum. It was in the blood. She was from Lexington, Kentucky. Name was Horton before she was married. And so on, by the hour, the man's tongue would go. He could not forget anything. It was simply impossible. The most trivial details remained as distinct and luminous in his head, after they had lain there for years, as the most memorable events. His was not simply a pilot's memory. Its grasp was universal." If he were talking about a trifling letter he had received seven years before, he was pretty sure to deliver you the entire screed from memory. And then, without observing that he was departing from the true line of his talk, he was more than likely to hurl in a long-drawn parenthetical biography of the writer of that letter. And you were lucky indeed if he did not take up that writer's relatives, one by one, and give you their biographies, too. Such a memory as that is a great misfortune. To it, all occurrences are on the same size. Its possessor cannot distinguish an interesting circumstance from an uninteresting one. As a talker, he is bound to clog his narrative with tiresome details and make himself an insufferable bore. Moreover, he cannot stick to his subject. He picks up every little grain of memory he discerns in his way, and so is led aside. Mr. J. would start out with the honest intention of telling you a vastly funny anecdote about a dog— he would be so full of laugh that he could hardly begin. Then his memory would start with the dog's breed and personal appearance, drift into a history of his owner, of his owner's family, with descriptions of weddings and burials that had occurred in it, together with recitals of congratulatory verses and obituary poetry provoked by the same. Then this memory would recollect that one of these events occurred during the celebrated hard winter of such-and-such such a year— and a minute description of that winter would follow, along with the names of people who were frozen to death, and statistics showing the high figures which pork and hay went up to. 
pork and hay would suggest corn and fodder corn and fodder would suggest cows and horses the latter would suggest the circus and certain celebrated bareback riders the transition from the circus to the menagerie was easy and natural from the elephant to equatorial africa was but a step then of course the heathen savages would suggest religion and at the end of three or four hours tedious jaw the watch would change and jay would go out of the pilot-house muttering extracts from sermons he had heard years before about the efficacy of prayer as a means of grace and the original first mention would be all you had learned about that dog after all this waiting and hungering a pilot must have a memory but there are two higher qualities which he must also have he must have good and quick judgment and decision and a cool calm courage that no peril can shake give a man the merest trifle of pluck to start with and by the time he has become a pilot he cannot be unmanned by any danger a steamboat can get into but one cannot quite say the same for judgment judgment is a matter of brains and a man must start with a good stock of that article or he will never succeed as a pilot the growth of courage in the pilot-house is steady all the time, but it does not reach a high and satisfactory condition until some time after the young pilot has been standing his own watch, alone, and under the staggering weight of all the responsibilities connected with the position. When an apprentice has become pretty thoroughly acquainted with the river, he goes clattering along so fearlessly with his steamboat, night or day, that he presently begins to imagine that it is his courage that animates him. But the first time the pilot steps out and leaves him to his own devices, he finds out it was the other man's. He discovers that the article has been left out of his own cargo altogether. The whole river is bristling with exigencies in a moment. He is not prepared for them. He does not know how to meet them. All his knowledge forsakes him, and within fifteen minutes he is as white as a sheet and scared almost to death. Therefore pilots wisely train these cubs by various strategic tricks to look danger in the face a little more calmly. A favorite way of theirs is to play a friendly swindle upon the candidate. Mr. B. served me in this fashion once, and for years afterwards I used to blush even in my sleep when I thought of it. I had become a good steersman, so good indeed that I had all the work to do on our watch, night or day. Mr. B. seldom made a suggestion to me. All he ever did was to take the wheel on particularly bad nights or in particularly bad crossings, land the boat when she needed to be landed, play gentleman of leisure nine-tenths of the watch, and collect his wages. The lower river was about bank full, and if anybody had questioned my ability to run any crossing between Cairo and New Orleans without help or instruction, I should have felt irreparably hurt. The idea of being afraid of any crossing in the lot in the daytime was a thing too preposterous for contemplation. Well, one matchless summer's day, I was bowling down the bend above Island 66, brimful of self-conceit, and carrying my nose as high as a giraffe's, when Mr. B. said, "'I am going below a while. I suppose you know the next crossing?' This was almost an affront. It was about the plainest and simplest crossing in the whole river." One couldn't come to any harm, whether he ran it right or not, and as for depth, there never had been any bottom there. I knew all this perfectly well. Now, how to run it? Why, I can run it with my eyes shut. How much water is there in it? Well, that is an odd question. 
I couldn't get bottom there with a church steeple. You think so, do you? The very tone of the question shook my confidence. That was what Mr. B. was expecting. He left without saying anything more. I began to imagine all sorts of things. Mr. B., unknown to me, of course, sent somebody down to the forecastle with some mysterious instructions to the leadsman. Another messenger was sent to whisper among the officers, and then Mr. B. went into hiding behind a smokestack where he could observe results. Presently, the captain stepped out on the hurricane deck. Next, the chief mate appeared. Then a clerk. Every moment or two a straggler was added to my audience. Before I got to the head of the island, I had fifteen or twenty people assembled down there under my nose. I began to wonder what the trouble was. As I started across, the captain glanced aloft at me and said, with a sham uneasiness in his voice, "'Where's Mr. B?' "'Gone below, sir.' But that did the business for me. My imagination began to construct dangers out of nothing, and they multiplied faster than I could keep the run of them. All at once I imagined I saw shoal water ahead— the wave of coward agony that surged through me then came near dislocating every joint in me. All my confidence in that crossing vanished. I seized the bell-rope, dropped it, ashamed, seized it again, dropped it once more, clutched it tremblingly once again, and pulled it so feebly that I could hardly hear the stroke myself. Captain and mate sang out instantly, and both together, "'Starboard lad there, and quick about it!' This was another shock." I began to climb the wheel like a squirrel, but I would hardly get the boat started to port before I would see new dangers on that side, and away I would spin to the other, only to find perils accumulating to starboard, and be crazy to get to port again. Then came the leadsman's sepulchral cry, "'Deep four!' Deep four in a bottomless crossing. The terror of it took my breath away. "'Mark three. Mark three, quarterless three, half twain. This was frightful. I seized the bell ropes and stopped the engines. Quarter twain, quarter twain, mark twain. I was helpless. I did not know what in the world to do. I was quaking from head to foot and I could have hung my hat on my eyes, they stuck out so far. Quarterless, twain, nine and a half. We were drawing nine. My hands were in a nerveless flutter. I could not ring a bell intelligibly with them. I flew to the speaking tube and shouted to the engineer, Oh, Ben, if you love me, back her. Quick, Ben, oh, back the immortal soul out of her. I heard the door close gently. I looked around and there stood Mr. B., smiling, a bland, sweet smile. Then the audience on the hurricane deck sent up a shout of humiliating laughter. I saw it all now, and I felt meaner than the meanest man in human history. I laid in the lead, set the boat in her marks, came ahead on the engines, and said, It was a fine trick to play on an orphan, wasn't it? I suppose I'll never hear the last of how I was ass enough to heave the lead at the head of sixty-six. Well, no, you won't, maybe. In fact, I hope you won't, for I want you to learn something by that experience. Didn't you know there was no bottom in that crossing? Yes, sir, I did. Very well, then. You shouldn't have allowed me or anybody else to shake your confidence in that knowledge. 
Try to remember that. And another thing, when you get into a dangerous place, don't turn coward. That isn't going to help matters any. It was a good enough lesson, but pretty hardly learned. Yet about the hardest part of it was that for months I so often had to hear a phrase which I had conceived a particular distaste for. It was, Oh, Ben, if you love me, back her. End of chapter 5This is section six of Old Times on the Mississippi. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Old Times on the Mississippi by Mark Twain. Chapter six. Official rank and dignity of a pilot. The rise and decadence of the Pilots Association. In my preceding articles, I have tried, by going into the minutiae of the science of piloting, to carry the reader step by step to a comprehension of what the science consists of, and at the same time I have tried to show him that it is a very curious and wonderful science too, and very worthy of his attention. If I have seemed to love my subject, it is no surprising thing, for I loved the profession far better than any I have followed since, and I took a measureless pride in it. The reason is plain. A pilot in those days was the only unfettered and entirely independent human being that lived in the earth. Kings are but the hampered servants of Parliament and people. Parliaments sit in chains forged by their constituency. The editor of a newspaper cannot be independent, but must work with one hand tied behind him by party and patrons, and be content to utter only half or two-thirds of his mind— no clergyman is a free man, and may speak the whole truth, regardless of his parish's opinion. Writers of all kinds are manacled servants of the public. We write frankly and fearlessly, but then we modify before we print. In truth, every man and woman and child has a master, and worries and frets in servitude. But in the day I write of, the Mississippi pilot had none. The captain could stand upon the hurricane deck, in the pomp of a very brief authority, and give him five or six orders, while the vessel backed into the stream, and then that skipper's reign was over. The moment that the boat was under way in the river, she was under the sole and unquestioned control of the pilot. He could do with her exactly as he pleased, run her when and whither he chose, and tire up to the bank whenever his judgment said that that course was best. His movements were entirely free. He consulted no one. He received commands from nobody. He promptly resented even the merest suggestions. Indeed, the law of the United States forbade him to listen to commands or suggestions, rightly considering that the pilot necessarily knew better how to handle the boat than anybody could tell him. So here was the novelty of a king without a keeper, an absolute monarch who was absolute in sober truth and not by a fiction of words. I have seen a boy of eighteen taking a great steamer serenely into what seemed almost certain destruction, and the aged captain standing mutely by, filled with apprehension but powerless to interfere. 
His interference in that particular instance might have been an excellent thing, but to permit it would have been to establish the most pernicious precedent. It will easily be guessed, considering the pilot's boundless authority, that he was a great personage in the old steamboating days. He was treated with marked courtesy by the captain, and with marked deference by all the officers and servants. And this deferential spirit was quickly communicated to the passengers, too. I think pilots were about the only people I ever knew who failed to show, in some degree, embarrassment in the presence of traveling foreign princes. But then people in one's own grade of life are not usually embarrassing objects. By long habit, pilots came to put all their wishes in the form of commands. It gravels me, to this day, to put my will in the weak shape of a request, instead of launching it in the crisp language of an order. In those days, to load a steamboat at St. Louis, take her to New Orleans and back, and discharge cargo, consumed about twenty-five days on an average. Seven or eight of these days the boat spent at the wharves of St. Louis and uh, New Orleans, and every soul on board was hard at work except the two pilots. They did nothing but play gentlemen uptown, and received the same wages for it as if they had been on duty. The moment the boat touched the wharf at either city, they were ashore, and they were not likely to be seen again till the last bell was ringing and everything in readiness for another voyage. When a captain got hold of a pilot of particularly high reputation, he took pains to keep him. When wages were four hundred dollars a month on the upper Mississippi, I have known a captain to keep such a pilot in idleness under full pay three months at a time, while the river was frozen up. And one must remember that in those cheap times four hundred dollars was a salary of almost inconceivable splendor. Few men on shore got such pay as that, and when they did, they were mightily looked up to. When pilots from either end of the river wandered into our small Missouri village, they were sought by the best and the fairest, and treated with exalted respect. Lying in port under wages was a thing which many pilots greatly enjoyed and appreciated, especially if they belonged in the Missouri River in the heyday of that trade, Kansas times, and got nine hundred dollars a trip, which was equivalent to about eighteen hundred dollars a month. Here is a conversation of that day. A chap out of the Illinois River, with a little stern-wheel tub, accosts a couple of ornate and gilded Missouri River pilots. "'Gentlemen, I've got a pretty good trip for the up-country, and shall want you about a month. How much will it be?' Eighteen hundred dollars apiece.' "'Heavens and earth! You take my boat. Let me have your wages. I'll divide.' I will remark in passing that Mississippi steamboatsmen were important in landsmen's eyes, and in their own, too, in a degree, according to the dignity of the boat they were on. For instance, it was a proud thing to be of the crew of such stately craft as the Alec Scott or the Grand Turk. Negro firemen, deckhands, and barbers belonging to those boats were distinguished personages in their grade of life and they were well aware of that fact, too. A stalwart darkey once gave offense at a negro ball in New Orleans by putting on a good many airs. Finally one of the managers bustled up to him and said, 
Who is you, anyway? Who is you? That's what I wants to know. The offender was not disconcerted in the least, but swelled himself up and threw that into his voice, which showed that he knew he was putting on all those airs on a stinted capital. Who is I? Who is I? I let you know mighty quick who I is. I want you niggers to understand that I fires the middle door. Note one, door. On to Alex Scott. That was sufficient. The barber of the Grand Turk was a spruce young negro who aired his importance with balmy complacency, and was greatly courted by the circle in which he moved. The young colored population of New Orleans were much given to flirting at twilight on the pavements of the back streets. Somebody saw and heard something like the following one evening in one of those localities. A middle-aged negro woman projected her head through a broken pane and shouted, very willing that the neighbors should hear and envy, "'You, Marianne, come to the house this minute, standing out there fooling along with that low trash, and here the barber off in the Grand Turk wants to converse with you.' My reference a moment ago to the fact that a pilot's peculiar official position placed him out of the reach of criticism or command— brings Stephen W. naturally to my mind. He was a gifted pilot, a good fellow, a tireless talker, and had both wit and humor in him. He had a most irreverent independence, too, and was deliciously easy-going and comfortable in the presence of age, official dignity, and even a most august wealth. He always had work. He never saved a penny. He was a most persuasive borrower. He was in debt to every pilot on the river and to the majority of the captains. He could throw a sort of splendor around a bit of harum-scarum, devil-may-care piloting, that made it almost fascinating, but not to everybody. He made a trip with good old gentle-spirited Captain Y once, and was relieved from duty when the boat got to New Orleans. Somebody expressed surprise at the discharge. Captain Y shuddered at the mere mention of Stephen— then his poor, thin old voice piped out something like this. "'Why, bless me! I wouldn't have such a wild creature on my boat for the world, not for the whole world. He swears, he sings, he whistles, he yells. I never saw such an engine to yell. All times of the night never made any difference to him. He would just yell that way, not for anything in particular, but merely on account of a kind of devilish comfort he got out of it. I never could get into a sound sleep, but he would fetch me out of bed, all in a cold sweat, with one of those dreadful war-whoops. A queer being. Very queer being. No respect for anything or anybody. Sometimes he called me Johnny, and he kept a fiddle and a cat— he played execrably. This seemed to distress the cat, and so the cat would howl. Nobody could sleep where that man and his family was. And reckless? There never was anything like it. Now, you may believe it or not, but as sure as I am sitting here, he brought my boat a-tilting down through those awful snags at Chicot, under a rattling head of steam, and the wind a-blowing like the very nation at that. My officers will tell you so. They saw it. And, sir, while he was a-tearin' right down through those snags, and I shakin' in my shoes and prayin', I wish I may never speak again if he didn't pucker up his mouth and go to whistling. Yes, sir, whistling. 
buffalo gals can't you come out tonight can't you come out tonight can't you come out tonight and doing it as calmly as if we were attending a funeral and weren't related to the corpse and when i remonstrated with him about it he smiled down on me as if i was his child and told me to run in the house and try to be good and not be meddling with my superiors note one considering a captain's ostentatious but hollow chieftainship and a pilot's real authority there was something impudently apt and happy about that way of phrasing it once a pretty mean captain caught stephen in new orleans out of work and as usual out of money he laid steady siege to stephen who was in a very close place and finally persuaded him to hire with him at one hundred and twenty-five dollars per month just half wages the captain agreeing not to divulge the secret and so bring down the contempt of all the guild upon the poor fellow but the boat was not more than a day out of new orleans before stephen discovered that the captain was boasting of his exploit and that all the officers had been told stephen winced but said nothing about the middle of the afternoon the captain stepped out on the hurricane deck cast his eye around and looked a good deal surprised he glanced inquiringly aloft at stephen but stephen was whistling placidly and attending to business the captain stood around a while in evident discomfort and once or twice seemed about to make a suggestion but the etiquette of the river taught him to avoid that sort of rashness and so he managed to hold his peace he chafed and puzzled a few minutes longer then retired to his apartments but soon he was out again and apparently more perplexed than ever presently he ventured to remark with deference pretty good stage of the river now ain't it sir well i should say so bankful is a pretty liberal stage seems to be a good deal of current here good deal don't describe it it's worse than a mill race isn't it easier in toward shore than it is out here in the middle yes i reckon it is but a body can't be too careful with a steamboat it's pretty safe out here can't strike any bottom here you can depend on that the captain departed looking rueful enough at this rate he would probably die of old age before his boat got to st louis next day he appeared on deck and again found stephen faithfully standing up the middle of the river fighting the whole vast force of the mississippi and whistling the same placid tune this thing was becoming serious in by the shore was a slower boat clipping along in the easy water and gaining steadily she began to make for an island shoot stephen stuck to the middle of the river speech was wrung from the captain he said mr w don't that shoot cut off a good deal of distance i think it does but i don't know don't know well isn't there water enough in it now to go through i expect there is but i am not certain upon my word this is odd why those pilots on that boat yonder are going to try it do you mean to say that you don't know as much as they do they why they are two hundred and fifty dollar pilots but don't you be uneasy i know as much as any man can afford to know for a hundred and twenty-five five minutes later stephen was bowling through the chute and showing the rival boat a two hundred and fifty dollar pair of heels one day on board that aleck scott my chief mr b 
was crawling carefully through a close place at Cat Island, both leads going, and everybody holding his breath. The captain, a nervous, apprehensive man, kept still as long as he could, but finally broke down and shouted from the hurricane deck, "'For gracious sake, give her steam, Mr. B., give her steam. She'll never raise the reef on this headway.' For all the effect that was produced upon Mr. B., one would have supposed that no remark had been made. But five minutes later, when the danger was passed and the leads laid in, he burst instantly into a consuming fury and gave the captain the most admirable cursing I ever listened to. No bloodshed ensued, but that was because the captain's cause was weak, for ordinarily he was not a man to take correction quietly. Having now set forth in detail the nature of the science of piloting, and likewise described the rank which the pilot held among the fraternity of steamboat men, this seems a fitting place to say a few words about an organization which the pilots once formed for the protection of their guild. It was curious and noteworthy in this, that it was perhaps the compactest, the completest, and the strongest commercial organization ever formed among men. For a long time wages had been $250 a month. But, curiously enough, as steamboats multiplied and business increased, the wages began to fall little by little. It was easy to discover the reason of this. Too many pilots were being made. It was nice to have a cub, a steersman, to do all the hard work for a couple of years, gratis, while his master sat on a high bench and smoked. All pilots and captains had sons or brothers who wanted to be pilots. By and by it came to pass that nearly every pilot on the river had a steersman. When a steersman had made an amount of progress that was satisfactory to any two pilots in the trade, they could get a pilot's license for him by signing an application directed to the United States inspector. Nothing further was needed. Usually no questions were asked, no proofs of capacity required. Very well, this growing swarm of new pilots presently began to undermine the wages in order to get berths. Too late, apparently, the knights of the tiller perceived their mistake. Plainly, something had to be done, and quickly. But what was to be the needful thing? A close organization. Nothing else would answer. To compass this seemed an impossibility, so it was talked and talked, and then dropped. It was too likely to ruin whoever ventured to move in the matter. But at last about a dozen of the boldest, and some of them the best, pilots on the river launched themselves into the enterprise and took all the chances. They got a special charter from the legislature, with large powers under the name of the Pilots' Benevolent Association, elected their officers, completed their organization, contributed capital, put association wages up to $250 at once, and then retired to their homes, for they were promptly discharged from employment. But there were two or three unnoticed trifles in their bylaws which had the seeds of propagation in them. For instance, all idle members of the association in good standing were entitled to a pension of $25 per month. This began to bring in one straggler after another from the ranks of the new-fledged pilots in the dull summer season. Better have twenty-five dollars than starve. The initiation fee was only twelve dollars, and no dues required from the unemployed. 
Also, the widows of deceased members in good standing could draw $25 per month, and a certain sum for each of their children. Also, the said deceased would be buried at the association's expense. These things resurrected all the superannuated and forgotten pilots in the Mississippi Valley. They came from farms, they came from interior villages, they came from everywhere. They came on crutches, on drays, in ambulances, any way so they got there. They paid their twelve dollars, and straightway began to draw out twenty-five dollars a month and calculate their burial bills. By and by, all the useless, helpless pilots and a dozen first-class ones were in the association, and nine-tenths of the best pilots out of it and laughing at it. It was the laughing-stock of the whole river. Everybody joked about the by-law requiring members to pay ten percent of their wages every month into the treasury for the support of the association, whereas all the members were outcast and tabooed, and no one would employ them. Everybody was derisively grateful to the association for taking all the worthless pilots out of the way and leaving the whole field to the excellent and the deserving, and everybody was not only jocularly grateful for that, but for a result which naturally followed, namely, the gradual advance of wages as the busy season approached. Wages had gone up from the low figure of $100 a month to 125 and in some cases to 150 and it was great fun to enlarge upon the fact that this charming thing had been accomplished by a body of men, not one of whom received a particle of benefit from it. Some of the jokers used to call at the association rooms and have a good time chafing the members and offering them the charity of taking them as steersmen for a trip so that they could see what the forgotten river looked like. However, the association was content, or at least it gave no sign to the contrary. Now and then it captured a pilot who was out of luck and added him to its list, and these later additions were very valuable, for they were good pilots. The incompetent ones had all been absorbed before. As business freshened, wages climbed gradually up to two hundred and fifty dollars, the association figure, and became firmly fixed there, and still without benefiting a member of that body, for no member was hired. The hilarity at the association's expense burst all bounds now. There was no end to the fun which that poor martyr had to put up with. However, it is a long lane that has no turning. Winter approached, business doubled and trebled, and an avalanche of Missouri, Illinois, and Upper Mississippi River boats came pouring down to take a chance in the New Orleans trade. All of a sudden, pilots were in great demand, and were correspondingly scarce. The time for revenge was come. It was a bitter pill to have to accept association pilots at last, yet captains and owners agreed that there was no other way. But none of these outcasts offered, so there was a still bitterer pill to be swallowed. They must be sought out and asked for their services. Captain Blank was the first man who found it necessary to take the dose, and he had been the loudest derider of the organization. He hunted up one of the best of the association pilots and said, well, you boys have rather got the best of us for a little while, so I'll give in with as good a grace as I can. I've come to hire you. 
Get your trunk aboard right away. I want to leave at twelve o'clock. I don't know about that. Who is your other pilot? I've got I.S. Why? I can't go with him. He don't belong to the association. What? It's so. You mean to tell me that you won't turn a wheel with one of the very best and oldest pilots on the river because he don't belong to your association? Yes, I do. Well, if this isn't putting on airs. I supposed I was doing you a benevolence, but I begin to think that I am the party that wants a favor done. Are you acting under a law of the concern? Yes. Show it to me. So they stepped into the association's rooms, and the secretary soon satisfied the captain, who said, "'Well, what am I to do? I have hired Mr. S. for the entire season.' "'I will provide for you,' said the secretary. "'I will detail a pilot to go with you, and he shall be on board at twelve o'clock. But if I discharge S., he will come on me for the whole season's wages.' "'Of course that is a matter between you and Mr. S., Captain. We cannot meddle in your private affairs.' The captain stormed, but to no purpose. In the end he had to discharge S., pay him about a thousand dollars, and take an association pilot in his place. The laugh was beginning to turn the other way now. Every day thenceforward a new victim fell. Every day some outraged captain discharged a non-association pet with tears and profanity, and installed a hated association man in his berth. In a very little while, idle non-associationists began to be pretty plenty, brisk as business was, and much as their services were desired. The laugh was shifting to the other side of their mouths most palpably. These victims, together with the captains and owners, presently ceased to laugh altogether, and began to rage about the revenge they would take when the passing business spurt was over. Soon all the laughers that were left were the owners and crews of boats that had two non-association pilots. But their triumph was not very long-lived, for this reason. It was a rigid rule of the association that its members should never, under any circumstances whatever, give information about the channel to any outsider. By this time about half the boats had none but association pilots, and the other half had none but outsiders. At the first glance, one would suppose that when it came to forbidding information about the river, these two parties could play equally at that game. But this was not so. At every good-sized town, from one end of the river to the other, there was a wharf-boat to land at, instead of a wharf or a pier. Freight was stored in it for transportation, waiting passengers slept in its cabins. Upon each of these wharf-boats the association's officers placed a strong-box, fastened with a peculiar lock, which was used in no other service but one, the United States Mail Service. It was the letter-bag lock, a sacred governmental thing. By dint of much beseeching the government had been persuaded to allow the association to use this lock. Every association man carried a key which would open these boxes. That key, or rather a peculiar way of holding it in the hand when its owner was asked for river information by a stranger, for the success of the St. Louis and New Orleans Association had now bred tolerably thriving branches in a dozen neighboring steamboat trades, was the association man's sign and diploma of membership. And if the stranger did not respond by producing a similar key, 
and holding it in a certain manner duly prescribed, his question was politely ignored. From the association secretary each member received a package of more or less gorgeous blanks, printed like a bill-head on handsome paper, properly ruled in columns, a bill-head worded something like this, Steamer Great Republic, John Smith Master, Pilots John Jones and Thomas Brown, Crossing, Soundings, Marks, Remarks. These blanks were filled up day by day as the voyage progressed and deposited in the several wharf-boat boxes. For instance, as soon as the first crossing out from St. Louis was completed, the items would be entered upon the blank under the appropriate heading thus, St. Louis, nine and a half feet, stern on courthouse, head on dead cottonwood above woodyard, until you raise the first reef, then pull up square. Then under head of remarks, go just outside the wrecks, this is important, new snag just where you straighten down, go above it. The pilot who deposited that blank in the Cairo box, after adding to it the details of every crossing all the way down from St. Louis, took out and read half a dozen fresh reports from upward-bound steamers concerning the river between Cairo and Memphis, posted himself thoroughly, returned them to the box, and went back aboard his boat again, so armed against accident that he could not possibly get his boat into trouble without bringing the most ingenious carelessness to his aid." Imagine the benefits of so admirable a system in a piece of river twelve or thirteen hundred miles long, whose channel was shifting every day. The pilot, who had formerly been obliged to put up with seeing a shoal place once or possibly twice a month, had a hundred sharp eyes to watch it for him now, and bushels of intelligent brains to tell him how to run it. His information about it was seldom twenty-four hours old. If the reports in the last box chanced to leave any misgivings on his mind concerning a treacherous crossing, he had his remedy. He blew his steam-whistle in a peculiar way as soon as he saw a boat approaching. The signal was answered in a peculiar way if that boat's pilots were association men. And then the two steamers ranged alongside, and all uncertainties were swept away by fresh information furnished to the inquirer, by word of mouth, and in minute detail." The first thing a pilot did when he reached New Orleans or St. Louis was to take his final and elaborate report to the association parlors and hang it up there, after which he was free to visit his family. In these parlors a crowd was always gathered together discussing changes in the channel, and the moment there was a fresh arrival, everybody stopped talking till this witness had told the newest news and settled the latest uncertainty. Other craftsmen can sink the shop— sometimes, and interest themselves in other matters. Not so with a pilot. He must devote himself wholly to his profession and talk of nothing else, for it would be a small gain to be perfect one day and imperfect the next. He has no time or words to waste if he would keep posted. But the outsiders had a hard time of it, no particular place to meet and exchange information, no wharf-boat reports none but chance and unsatisfactory ways of getting news. The consequence was that a man sometimes had to run five hundred miles of river on information that was a week or ten days old. At a fair stage of the river that might have answered, but when the dead low water came it was destructive. Now came another perfectly logical result. The outsiders began to ground steamboats, 
sink them, and get into all sorts of trouble, whereas accidents seem to keep entirely away from the association men. Wherefore even the owners and captains of boats furnished exclusively with outsiders, and previously considered to be wholly independent of the association, and free to comfort themselves with brag and laughter, began to feel pretty uncomfortable. Still they made a show of keeping up the brag, until one black day when every captain of the lot was formally ordered immediately to discharge his outsiders and take association pilots in their stead. And who was it that had the gaudy presumption to do that? Alas, it came from a power behind the throne that was greater than the throne itself. It was the underwriters. It was no time to swap knives. Every outsider had to take his trunk ashore at once. Of course, it was supposed that there was collusion between the association and the underwriters, but this was not so. The latter had come to comprehend the excellence of the report system of the association and the safety it secured, and so they had made their decision among themselves and upon plain business principles. There was weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth in the camp of the outsiders now, but no matter, there was but one course for them to pursue, and they pursued it. They came forward in couples and groups, and proffered their twelve dollars, and asked for membership. They were surprised to learn that several new bylaws had been long ago added. For instance, the initiation fee had been raised to fifty dollars, that sum must be tendered, and also ten percent of the wages which the applicant had received each and every month since the founding of the association. In many cases this amounted to three or four hundred dollars. Still the association would not entertain the application until the money was present. Even then a single adverse vote killed the application. Every member had to vote yes or no in person and before witnesses. So it took weeks to decide a candidacy, because many pilots were so long absent on voyages. However, the repentant sinners scraped their savings together, and one by one, by our tedious voting process, they were added to the fold. A time came, at last, when only about ten remained outside. They said they would starve before they would apply. They remained idle a long while, because, of course, nobody could venture to employ them. By and by the association published the fact that upon a certain date the wages would be raised to five hundred dollars per month. All the branch associations had grown strong now, and the Red River one had advanced wages to seven hundred dollars a month. Reluctantly the ten outsiders yielded, in view of these things, and made application. There was another new by-law by this time, which required them to pay dues not only on all the wages they had received since the association was born, but also on what they would have received if they had continued at work up to the time of their application, instead of going off to pout in idleness. It turned out to be a difficult matter to elect them, but it was accomplished at last. The most virulent sinner of this batch had stayed out and allowed dues to accumulate against him so long that he had to send in $625 with his application. The association had a good bank account now, and was very strong. There was no longer an outsider. A by-law was added forbidding the reception of any more cubs or apprentices for five years, after which time a 
limited number would be taken, not by individuals, but by the association, upon these terms. The applicant must not be less than eighteen years old, of respectable family and good character. He must pass an examination as to education, pay a thousand dollars in advance for the privilege of becoming an apprentice, and must remain under the commands of the association until a great part of the membership, more than half, I think, should be willing to sign his application for a pilot's license. All previously articled apprentices were now taken away from their masters and adopted by the association. The president and secretary detailed them for service on one boat or another, as they chose, and changed them from boat to boat according to certain rules. If a pilot could show that he was in infirm health and needed assistance, one of the cubs would be ordered to go with him. The widow and orphan list grew, but so did the association's financial resources. The association attended its own funerals in state and paid for them. When occasion demanded, it sent members down the river upon searches for the bodies of brethren lost by steamboat accidents. A search of this kind sometimes cost a thousand dollars. The association procured a charter and went into the insurance business also. It not only insured the lives of its members, but took risks on steamboats. The organization seemed indestructible. It was the tightest monopoly in the world. By the United States law, no man could become a pilot unless two duly licensed pilots signed his application, and now there was nobody outside the association competent to sign. Consequently, the making of pilots was at an end. Every year some would die and others become incapacitated by age and infirmity. There would be no new ones to take their places. In time, the association could put wages up to any figure it chose, and as long as it should be wise enough not to carry the thing too far and provoke the national government into amending the licensing system, steamboat owners would have to submit, since there would be no help for it. The owners and captains were the only obstruction that lay between the association and absolute power, and at last this one was removed. Incredible as it may seem, the owners and captains deliberately did it themselves. When the Pilots' Association announced months beforehand that on the first day of September 1861 wages would be advanced to $500 per month, the owners and captains instantly put freights up a few cents and explained to the farmers along the river the necessity of it by calling their attention to the burdensome rate of wages about to be established. It was rather a slender argument, but the farmers did not seem to detect it. It looked reasonable to them that to add five cents freight on a bushel of corn was justifiable under the circumstances, overlooking the fact that this advance on a cargo of 40,000 sacks was a good deal more than necessary to cover the new wages. So straightway the captains and owners got up an association of their own, and proposed to put captains' wages up to $500 too, and move for another advance in freights. It was a novel idea, but of course an effect which had been produced once could be produced again. The new association decreed, for this was before all the outsiders had been taken into the Pilots' Association, that if any captain employed a non-association pilot, he should be forced to discharge him and also pay a fine of five hundred dollars. 
Several of these heavy fines were paid before the Captain's Association grew strong enough to exercise full authority over its membership, but that all ceased presently. The Captains tried to get the pilots to decree that no member of their corporation should serve under a non-association Captain, but this proposition was declined. The pilots saw that they would be backed up by the Captains and the underwriters anyhow, and so they wisely refrained from entering into entangling alliances. As I have remarked, the Pilots' Association was now the compactest monopoly in the world, perhaps, and seemed simply indestructible. And yet the days of its glory were numbered. First, the new railroad stretching up through Mississippi, Tennessee, and Kentucky to northern railway centers began to divert the passenger travel from the steamers. Next, the war came, and almost entirely annihilated the steamboating industry during several years, leaving most of the pilots idle, and the cost of living advancing all the time. Then the treasurer of the St. Louis Association put his hand into the till, and walked off with every dollar of the ample fund. And finally, the railroads intruding everywhere. There was little for steamers to do, when the war was over, but carry freights. So straightway, some genius from the Atlantic coast introduced the plan of towing a dozen steamer cargoes down to New Orleans at the tail of a vulgar little tugboat. And behold, in the twinkling of an eye, as it were, the association and the noble science of piloting were things of the dead and pathetic past. End of chapter 6 This is section 7 of Old Times on the Mississippi. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Old Times on the Mississippi by Mark Twain, Chapter 7 Leaving Port, Racing, Shortening of the River by Cutoffs, A Steamboat's Ghost, Stephen's Plan of Resumption. It was always the custom for the boats to leave New Orleans between four and five o'clock in the afternoon. From three o'clock onward they would be burning rosin and pitch-pine, the sign of preparation, and so one had the picturesque spectacle of a rank, some two or three miles long, of tall, ascending columns of coal-black smoke, a colonnade which supported a sable roof of the same smoke blended together and spreading abroad over the city. Every outward-bound boat had its flag flying at the jackstaff, and sometimes a duplicate on the verge-staff astern. Two or three miles of mates were commanding and swearing with more than usual emphasis. Countless processions of freight-barrels and boxes were spinning down the slant of the levee and flying aboard the stage-planks. Belated passengers were dodging and skipping among these frantic things, hoping to reach the forecastle companionway alive, but having their doubts about it. Women with reticules and bandboxes were trying to keep up with husbands freighted with carpet-sacks and crying babies, and making a failure of it by losing their heads in the whirl and roar and general distraction. Drays and baggage-vans were clattering hither and thither in a wild hurry, every now and then getting blocked and jammed together, and then during ten seconds one could not see them for the profanity, except vaguely and dimly. Every windlass connected with every fore-hatch, from one end of that long array of steamboats to the other, was keeping up a deafening whiz and whirr, 
lowering freight into the hold, and the half-naked crews of perspiring negroes that worked them were roaring such songs as, De la sack, de la sack, inspired to unimaginable exaltation by the chaos of turmoil and racket that was driving everybody else mad. By this time the hurricane and boiler decks of the steamers would be packed and black with passengers. The last bells would begin to clang, all down the line, and then the powwow seemed to double. In a moment or two the final warning came, a simultaneous din of Chinese gongs with the cry, "'All that ain't going, please to get a show!' And behold, the powwow quadrupled. People came swarming ashore, overturning excited stragglers that were trying to swarm aboard. One more moment later a long array of stage planks was being hauled in, each with its customary latest passenger clinging to the end of it with teeth, nails, and everything else, and the customary latest procrastinator making a wild spring shoreward over his head. Now a number of the boats slide backward into the stream, leaving wide gaps in the serried rank of steamers. Citizens crowd the decks of boats that are not to go in order to see the sight. Steamer after steamer straightens herself up, gathers all her strength, and presently comes swinging by under a tremendous head of steam, with flag-waving, black smoke rolling, and her entire crew of firemen and deckhands, usually swarthy negroes, massed together on the forecastle, the best voice in the lot towering from the midst, being mounted on the capstan, waving his hat or a flag, and all roaring a mighty chorus, while the parting cannons boom, and the multitudinous spectators swing their hats and huzzah. Steamer after steamer falls into line, and the stately procession goes winging its way up the river. In the old times, whenever two fast boats started out on a race, with a big crowd of people looking on, it was inspiring to hear the crews sing, especially if the time were nightfall, and the forecastle lit up with the red glare of the torch-baskets. Racing was royal fun. The public always had an idea that racing was dangerous, whereas the very opposite was the case, that is, after the laws were passed which restrict each boat to just so many pounds of steam to the square inch. No engineer was ever sleepy or careless when his heart was in a race. He was constantly on the alert, trying gauge-cocks and watching things. The dangerous place was on slow, popular boats, where the engineers drowsed around and allowed chips to get into the doctor and shut off the water supply from the boilers. In the flush times of steamboating, a race between two notoriously fleet steamers was an event of vast importance. The date was set for it several weeks in advance, and from that time forward the whole Mississippi Valley was in a state of consuming excitement politics and the weather were dropped, and people talked only of the coming race. As the time approached, the two steamers stripped and got ready. Every encumbrance that added weight or exposed a resisting surface to wind or water was removed, if the boat could possibly do without it. The spars, and sometimes even their supporting derricks, were sent ashore, and no means left to set the boat afloat in case she got aground. When the Eclipse and the A. L. Shotwell ran their great race twenty-two years ago, it was said that pains were taken to scrape the gilding off the fanciful device which hung between the Eclipse's chimneys, and that for one trip the captain left off his kid gloves and had his head shaved. But I always doubted these things. 
If the boat was known to make her best speed when drawing five and a half feet forward and five aft, she was carefully loaded to that exact figure. She wouldn't enter a dose of homeopathic pills on her manifest after that. Hardly any passengers were taken, because they not only add weight, but they never will trim boat. They always run to the side when there is anything to see, whereas a conscientious and experienced steamboatman would stick to the center of the boat and part his hair in the middle with a spirit level. No way freight and no way passengers were allowed, for the racers would stop only at the largest towns, and then it would be only touch and go. Coal flats and wood flats were contracted for beforehand, and these were kept ready to hitch on to the flying steamers at a moment's warning. Double crews were carried, so that all work could be quickly done. The chosen date being come, and all things in readiness, the two great steamers back into the stream, and lie there jockeying a moment, and apparently watching each other's slightest movement, like sentient creatures. Flags drooping, the pent steam shrieking through safety valves, the black smoke rolling and tumbling from the chimneys and darkening all the air. People, people everywhere, the shores, the housetops, the steamboats, the ships are packed with them, and you know that the borders of the broad Mississippi are going to be fringed with humanity thence northward twelve hundred miles to welcome these racers. Presently tall columns of steam burst from the escape pipes of both steamers, two guns boom a good-bye, two red-shirted heroes mounted on capstans wave their small flags above the massed crews on the forecastles. two plaintive solos linger on the air a few waiting seconds, two mighty choruses burst forth, and here they come. Brass bands bray, hail Columbia, huzzah after huzzah thunders from the shores, and the stately creatures go whistling by like the wind. Those boats will never halt a moment between New Orleans and St. Louis, except for a second or two at large towns, or to hitch thirty cordwood boats alongside. You should be on board when they take a couple of those wood boats in tow and turn a swarm of men into each. By the time you have wiped your glasses and put them on, you'll be wondering what has become of that wood. Two nicely matched steamers will stay in sight of each other day after day. They might even stay side by side, but for the fact that pilots are not all alike, and the smartest pilots will win the race. If one of the boats has a lightning pilot whose partner is a trifle his inferior, you can tell which one is on watch by noting whether that boat has gained ground or lost some during each four-hour stretch. The shrewdest pilot can delay a boat if he has not a fine genius for steering. Steering is a very high art. One must not keep a rudder dragging across a boat's stern if he wants to get up the river fast. There is a marvelous difference in boats, of course. For a long time I was on a boat that was so slow that we used to forget what year it was we left port in. But, of course, this was at rare intervals. Ferry boats used to lose valuable trips because their passengers grew old and died, waiting for us to get by. This was at still rarer intervals. I had the documents for these occurrences, but through carelessness they have been mislaid. This boat, the John J. Rowe, was so slow that when she finally sunk in Madrid Bend it was five years before the owners heard of it. That was always a confusing fact to me, but it is according to the record, anyway. She was dismally slow. Still, we often had pretty exciting times racing with islands, 
rafts and such things. One trip, however, we did rather well. We went to St. Louis in sixteen days. But even at this rattling gait, I think we changed watches three times in Fort Adams Reach, which is five miles long. A reach is a piece of straight river, and of course the current drives through such a place in a pretty lively way. That trip we went to Grand Gulf from New Orleans in four days, three hundred and forty miles. The Eclipse and Shotwell did it in one. We were nine days out in the chute of sixty-three, seven hundred miles. The Eclipse and Shotwell went there in two days. Just about a generation ago, a boat called the J. M. White went from New Orleans to Cairo in three days, six hours, forty-four minutes. Twenty-two years ago, the Eclipse made the same trip in three days, three hours, and twenty minutes. About five years ago, the superb R. E. Lee did it in three days and one hour. This last is called the fastest trip on record. I will try to show that it was not. For this reason, the distance between New Orleans and Cairo, when the J. M. White ran it, was about eleven hundred and six miles. Consequently, her average speed was a trifle over fourteen miles per hour. In the Eclipse's day, the distance between the two ports had become reduced to one thousand and eighty miles. Consequently, her average speed was a shade under fourteen and three-eighths miles per hour. In the R. E. Lee's time, the distance had diminished to about one thousand and thirty miles. Consequently, her average was about fourteen and one-eighth miles per hour. Therefore, the Eclipse's was conspicuously the fastest time that has ever been made. These dry details are of importance in one particular. They give me an opportunity of introducing one of the Mississippi's oddest peculiarities, that of shortening its length from time to time. If you will throw a long, pliant apple paring over your shoulder, it will pretty fairly shape itself into an average section of the Mississippi River. That is, the nine or ten hundred miles stretching from Cairo, Illinois, southward to New Orleans, the same being wonderfully crooked, with a brief straight bit here and there at wide intervals. The two hundred mile stretch from Cairo northward to St. Louis is by no means so crooked, that being a rocky country which the river cannot cut much. The water cuts the alluvial banks of the lower river into deep horseshoe curves, so deep indeed that in some places if you were to get ashore at one extremity of the horseshoe and walk across the neck half or three-quarters of a mile, you could sit down and rest a couple of hours while your steamer was coming around the long elbow at a speed of ten miles an hour to take you aboard again. When the river is rising fast, some scoundrel whose plantation is back in the country, and therefore of inferior value, has only to watch his chance, cut a little gutter across the narrow neck of land some dark night, and turn the water into it, and in a wonderfully short time a miracle has happened. To it, the whole Mississippi has taken possession of that little ditch, and placed the countryman's plantation on its bank, quadrupling its value." and that other party's formerly valuable plantation finds itself away out yonder on a big island the old water-course around it will soon shoal up boats cannot approach within ten miles of it and down goes its value to a fourth of its former worth watchers are kept on those narrow necks at needful times 
and if a man happens to be caught cutting a ditch across them, the chances are all against his ever having another opportunity to cut a ditch. Pray observe the effects of this ditching business. Once there was a neck opposite Port Hudson, Louisiana, which was only half a mile across in its narrowest place. You could walk across there in fifteen minutes, but if you made the journey around the Cape on a raft, you travel thirty-five miles to accomplish the same thing. In 1722, the river darted through that neck, deserted its old bed, and thus shortened itself thirty-five miles. In the same way, it shortened itself twenty-five miles at Black Hawk Point in 1699. Below Red River Landing, Recourcy cut-off was made, thirty or forty years ago, I think. This shortened the river twenty-eight miles. In our day, if you travel by river from the southernmost of these three cut-offs to the northernmost, you go only seventy miles. To do the same thing a hundred and seventy-six years ago, you had to go a hundred and fifty-eight miles, a shortening of eighty-eight miles in that trifling distance. At some forgotten time in the past, cut-offs were made above Vidalia, Louisiana, at Island 92, at Island 84, and at Hales Point. These shortened the river, in the aggregate, seventy-seven miles. Since my own day on the Mississippi, I am informed that cut-offs have been made at Hurricane Island, at Island 100, at Napoleon, Arkansas, at Walnut Bend, and at Council Bend. These shortened the river, in the aggregate, sixty-seven miles. In my own time, a cut-off was made at American Bend, which shortened the river ten miles or more. Therefore, the Mississippi, between Cairo and New Orleans, was twelve hundred and fifteen miles long, one hundred and seventy-six years ago. It was eleven hundred and eighty after the cut-off of 1722. It was one thousand forty after the American Bend cut-off, some sixteen or seventeen years ago. It has lost sixty-seven miles since. Consequently, its length is only nine hundred and seventy-three miles at present. Now, if I wanted to be one of those ponderous scientific people, and led on to prove what had occurred in the remote past by what had occurred in a given time in the recent past, or what will occur in the far future by what has occurred in the late years, what an opportunity is here. Geology never had such a chance, nor such exact data to argue from, nor development of species either. Glacial epochs are great things, but they are vague, vague. Please observe. In the space of 176 years, the lower Mississippi has shortened itself 242 miles. That is an average of a trifle over one mile and a third per year. Therefore, any calm person who is not blind or idiotic can see that in the old Oolitic Silurian period, just a million years ago next November, the lower Mississippi River was upwards of one million three hundred thousand miles long, and stuck out over the Gulf of Mexico like a fishing rod. And, by the same token, any person can see that seven hundred and forty-two years from now, the lower Mississippi will be only a mile and three-quarters long, and Cairo and New Orleans will have joined their streets together, and be plodding comfortably along under a single mayor and a mutual board of aldermen. There is something fascinating about science. One gets such wholesale returns of conjecture out of such a trifling investment of fact. 
When the water begins to flow through one of those ditches I have been speaking of, it is time for the people thereabouts to move. The water cleaves the banks away like a knife. By the time the ditch has become twelve or fifteen feet wide, the calamity is as good as accomplished, for no power on earth can stop it now. When the width has reached a hundred yards, the banks begin to peel off in slices half an acre wide. The current flowing around the bend traveled formerly only five miles an hour. Now it is tremendously increased by the shortening of the distance. I was on board the first boat that tried to go through the cutoff at American Bend, but we did not get through. It was toward midnight, and a wild night it was, thunder, lightning, and torrents of rain. It was estimated that the current in the cutoff was making about fifteen or twenty miles an hour. Twelve or thirteen was the best our boat could do, even in tolerable slack water. Therefore, perhaps we were foolish to try the cutoff. However, Mr. X was ambitious, and he kept on trying. The eddy running up the bank under the point was about as swift as the current out in the middle. So we would go flying up the shore like a lightning express train, get on a big head of steam, and stand by for a surge when we struck the current that was whirling by the point. But all our preparations were useless. The instant the current hit us, it spun us around like a top, the water deluged the forecastle, and the boat careened so far over that one could hardly keep his feet. The next instant we were away down the river, clawing with might and main to keep out of the woods. We tried the experiment four times. I stood on the forecastle companionway to see. It was astonishing to observe how suddenly the boat would spin around and turn tail the moment she emerged from the eddy and the current struck her nose. The sounding concussion and the quivering would have been about the same if she had come full steam against a sandbank. Under the lightning flashes one could see the plantation cabins and the goodly acres tumble into the river, and the crash they made was not a bad effort at thunder. Once, when we spun around, we only missed a house about twenty feet that had a light burning in the window, and in the same instant that house went overboard. Nobody could stay on our forecastle. The water swept across it in a torrent every time we plunged athwart the current. At the end of our fourth effort we brought up in the woods two miles below the cut-off. All the country there was overflowing, of course. A day or two later the cut-off was three-quarters of a mile wide, and boats passed up it without much difficulty, and so saved ten miles. The old Recoursey cut-off reduced the river's length twenty-eight miles. There used to be a tradition connected with it. It was said that a boat came along there in the night and went around the enormous elbow in the usual way, the pilots not knowing that the cut-off had been made. It was a grisly, hideous night, and all shapes were vague and distorted. The old bend had already begun to fill up, and the boat got to running away from mysterious reefs and occasionally hitting one. The perplexed pilots fell to swearing, and finally uttered the entirely unnecessary wish that they might never get out of that place. As always happens in such cases, that particular prayer was answered, and the others neglected. So to this day that phantom steamer is still butting around in that deserted river, trying to find her way out. More than one grave watchman has sworn to me that on drizzly dismal nights he has glanced fearfully down that forgotten river as he passed the head of the island, and seen the faint glow of the spectre steamer's lights drifting through the distant gloom, 
and heard the muffled cough of her scape-pipes and the plaintive cry of her leadsmen. In the absence of further statistics, I beg to close this series of old Mississippi articles with one more reminiscence of wayward, careless, ingenious Stephen, whom I described in a former paper. Most of the captains and pilots held Stephen's note for borrowed sums ranging from $250 upward. Stephen never paid one of these notes, but he was very prompt and very zealous about renewing them every twelve months. Of course there came a time, at last, when Stephen could no longer borrow of his ancient creditors, so he was obliged to lie and wait for new men who did not know him. Such a victim was good-hearted, simple-natured young Yates. I use a fictitious name, but the real name began as this one does with a Y. Young Yates graduated as a pilot, got a berth, and when the month was ended and he stepped up to the clerk's office and received his two hundred and fifty dollars in crisp new bills, Stephen was there. His silvery tongue began to wag, and in a very little while Yates' two hundred and fifty dollars had changed hands. The fact was soon known at pilot headquarters, and the amusement and satisfaction of the old creditors were large and generous. But innocent Yates never suspected that Stephen's promise to pay promptly at the end of the week was a worthless one. Yates called for his money at the stipulated time. Stephen sweetened him up and put him off a week. He called then, according to agreement, and came away sugar-coated again, but suffering under another postponement. So the thing went on. Yates haunted Stephen week after week to no purpose and at last gave it up and then straightway Stephen began to haunt Yates. Wherever Yates appeared, there was the inevitable Stephen, and not only there, but beaming with affection and gushing with apologies for not being able to pay. By and by, whenever poor Yates saw him coming, he would turn and fly, and drag his company with him, if he had company. But it was of no use. His debtor would run him down and corner him, panting and red-faced, Stephen would come, with outstretched hands and eager eyes, invade the conversation, shake both of Yates' arms loose in their sockets, and begin, "'My, what a race I've had! I saw you didn't see me, and so I clapped on all steam for fear I'd miss you entirely. And here you are. There, just stand so and let me look at you. Just the same old noble countenance.' To Yates' friend, "'Just look at him. Look at him. Ain't it just good to look at him? Ain't it now?' Ain't he just a picture? Some call him a picture. I call him a panorama. That's what he is, an entire panorama. And now I'm reminded how I do wish I could have seen you an hour earlier. For twenty-four hours I've been saving up that two hundred and fifty dollars for you, been looking for you everywhere. I waited at the planter's from six yesterday evening till two o'clock this morning, without rest or food. My wife says, Where have you been all night? I said, this debt lies heavy on my mind. She says, In all my days I never saw a man take a debt to heart the way you do. I said, It's my nature. How can I change it? She says, Well, do go to bed and get some rest. I said, Not till that poor noble young man has got his money. So I sat up all night, and this morning out I shot, and the first man I struck told me you had shipped on the Grand Turk and gone to New Orleans. Well, sir, I had to lean up against a building and cry so help me goodness I couldn't help it. The man that owned the place came out cleaning up with a rag and said he didn't like to have people crying against his building. 
and then it seemed to me that the whole world had turned against me, and it wasn't any use to live any more. And coming along an hour ago, suffering no man knows what agony, I met Jim Wilson, and paid him the two hundred and fifty dollars on account. And to think that here you are now, and I haven't got a cent. But as sure as I am standing here on this ground, on this particular brick, there, I've scratched a mark on the brick to remember it by. I'll borrow that money and pay it over to you at twelve o'clock sharp tomorrow. Now, stand so. Let me look at you just once more. And so on. Yates' life became a burden to him. He could not escape his debtor and his debtor's awful suffering on account of not being able to pay. He dreaded to show himself in the street, lest he should find Stephen lying in wait for him at the corner. Bogart's billiard saloon was a great resort for pilots in those days. They met there about as much to exchange river news as to play. One morning Yates was there. Stephen was there, too, but kept out of sight. But by and by, when about all the pilots had arrived who were in town, Stephen suddenly appeared in the midst and rushed for Yates as for a long-lost brother. "'Oh, I am so glad to see you! Oh, my soul, the sight of you is such a comfort to my eyes! Gentlemen, I owe all of you money. Among you I owe probable forty thousand dollars. I want to pay it. I intend to pay it, every last cent of it. You all know, without my telling you, what sorrow it has cost me to remain so long under such deep obligations to such patient and generous friends. But the sharpest pang I suffer, by far the sharpest, is from the debt I owe to this noble young man here. And I have come to this place this morning especially to make the announcement that I have at last found a method whereby I can pay off all my debts. And most especially I wanted him to be here when I announced it. Yes, my faithful friend, my benefactor, I found the method to pay off all my debts, and you'll get your money. Hope dawned in Yates' eye. Then Stephen, beaming benignantly and placing his hand upon Yates' head, added, I am going to pay them off in alphabetical order. Then he turned and disappeared. The full significance of Stephen's method did not dawn upon the perplexed and musing crowd for some two minutes. Then Yates murmured with a sigh, Well, the wise stand a gaudy chance. He won't get any farther than the seas in this world, and I reckon that after a good deal of eternity has wasted away in the next one I'll still be referred to up there as that poor ragged pilot that came here from St. Louis in the early days. End of chapter 7「is section eight of old times on the mississippi this librivox recording is in the public domain old times on the mississippi by mark twain chapter eight a literary nightmare will the reader please to cast his eye over the following verses and see if he can discover anything harmful in them Conductor, when you receive a fare, punch in the presence of the passenger. A blue trip slip for an eight-cent fare, a buff trip slip for a six-cent fare, a pink trip slip for a three-cent fare. Punch in the presence of the passenger. Chorus. Punch, brothers, punch with care. Punch in the presence of the passenger. I came across these jingling rhymes in a newspaper a little while ago, and read them a couple of times. They took instant and entire possession of me. 
All through breakfast they went waltzing through my brain, and when at last I rolled up my napkin, I could not tell whether I had eaten anything or not. I had carefully laid out my day's work the day before, a thrilling tragedy in the novel which I am writing. I went to my den to begin my deed of blood. I took up my pen, but all I could get to say was, Punch in the presence of the passenger. I fought hard for an hour, but it was useless. My head kept humming, A blue trip slip for an eight-cent fare, A buff trip slip for a six-cent fare, And so on and so on, Without peace or respite. The day's work was ruined. I could see that plainly enough. I gave up and drifted downtown, And presently discovered that my feet Were keeping time to that relentless jingle. When I could stand it no longer, I altered my step. But it did no good. Those rhymes accommodated themselves to the new step, and went on harassing me just as before. I returned home and suffered all the afternoon, suffered all through an unconscious and unrefreshing dinner, suffered and cried and jingled all through the evening, went to bed and rolled, tossed, and jingled right along, the same as ever got up at midnight, frantic, and tried to read, but there was nothing visible on the whirling page except punch, punch in the presence of the passenger. By sunrise I was out of my mind, and everybody marveled and was distressed at the idiotic burden of my ravings. Punch, oh, punch, punch in the presence of the passenger. Two days later, on Sunday morning, I rose, a tottering wreck, and went forth to fulfill an engagement with a valued friend, the Reverend Mr. Blank, to walk to the Talcott Tower ten miles distant. He stared at me, but asked no questions. We started. Mr. Blank talked, 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 as is his wont. I said nothing. I heard nothing. At the end of a mile, Mr. Blank said, "'Mark, are you sick? I never saw a man look so haggard and worn and absent-minded.' "'Say something. Do!' Drearily, without enthusiasm, I said, "'Punch, brother, punch with care, punch in the presence of the passenger.' My friend eyed me blandly, looked perplexed, then said, "'I do not think I get your drift, Mark. There does not seem to be any relevancy in what you have said, certainly nothing sad. And yet, maybe it was the way you said the words. I never heard anything that sounded so pathetic. What is—' but I heard no more. I was already far away with my pitiless heart-breaking blue-trip-slip-for-an-eight-cent fare, buff-trip-slip-for-a-six-cent fare, pink-trip-slip-for-a-three-cent fare, punch-in-the-presence-of-the-passenger. I do not know what occurred during the other nine miles. However, all of a sudden Mr. Blank laid his hand on my shoulder and shouted, "'Oh, wake up! Wake up! Wake up! Don't sleep all day! Here we are at the tower, man!' I have talked myself deaf and dumb and blind, and never got a response. Just look at this magnificent autumn landscape. Look at it. Look at it. Feast your eyes on it. You have traveled. You have seen boasted landscapes elsewhere. Come now, deliver an honest opinion. What do you say to this? I sighed wearily, and murmured, A buff trip slip for a six-cent fare, a pink trip slip for a three-cent fare, punch in the presence of the passenger. Reverend Mr. Blank stood there very grave, full of concern, apparently, and looked long at me. Then he said, 
Mark, there is something about this that I cannot understand. Those are about the same words you said before. There does not seem to be anything in them, and yet they nearly break my heart when you say them. Punch in me... Uh, how, how is it they go? I began at the beginning and repeated all the lines. My friend's face lighted with interest. He said, Why, what a captivating jingle it is. It is almost music. It flows along so nicely. I have nearly caught the rhymes myself. Say them over just once more, and then I'll have them sure. I said them over. Then Mr. Blank said them. He made one little mistake which I corrected. The next time and the next he got them right. Now a great burden seemed to tumble from my shoulders. That torturing jingle departed out of my brain, and a grateful sense of rest and peace descended upon me. I was light-hearted enough to sing, and I did sing for half an hour straight along as we went jogging homewards. Then my freed tongue found blessed speech again, and the pent talk of many a weary hour began to gush and flow. It flowed on and on, joyously, jubilantly, until the fountain was empty and dry. As I wrung my friend's hand at parting, I said, "'Haven't we had a royal good time? But now I remember you haven't said a word for two hours. Come, come, out with something.' The Reverend Mr. Blank turned a lackluster eye upon me, drew a deep sigh, and said, without animation, without apparent consciousness, punch, brother, punch with care, punch in the presence of the passenger. A pang shot through me as I said to myself, poor fellow, poor fellow, he has got it now. I did not see Mr. Blank for two or three days after that. Then, on Tuesday evening, he staggered into my presence and sank dejectedly into a seat. He was pale, worn. He was a wreck. He lifted his faded eyes to my face and said, "'Ah, Mark, it was a ruinous investment that I made in those heartless rhymes. They have ridden me like a nightmare, day and night, hour after hour, to this very moment.' Since I saw you, I have suffered the torments of the lost. Saturday evening I had a sudden call by telegraph and took the night train for Boston. The occasion was the death of a valued old friend who had requested that I should preach his funeral sermon. I took my seat in the cars and set myself to framing the discourse, but I never got beyond the opening paragraph, for then the train started and the car wheels began their clack, 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 clack and right away those odious rhymes fitted themselves to that accompaniment. For an hour I sat there and set a syllable of those rhymes to every separate and distinct clack the car wheels made. Why, I was fagged out then, as if I had been chopping wood all day. My skull was splitting with headache. It seemed to me that I must go mad if I sat there any longer, so I undressed and went to bed. I stretched myself out in my berth, and, well— you know what the result was? The thing went right along, just the same. Clack, 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 a blue trip slip. Clack, 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 for an eight-cent fare. Clack, 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 a buff trip slip. Clack, 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 for a six-cent fare. And so on, and so on, and so on. Punch in the presence of the passenger. Sleep? <laughs> Not a single wink. I was almost a lunatic when I got to Boston. Don't ask me about the funeral. I did the best I could. 
but every solemn individual sentence was meshed and tangled and woven in and out with punch brothers punch with care punch in the presence of the passenger and the most distressing thing was that my delivery dropped into the undulating rhythm of those pulsing rhymes and i could actually catch absent-minded people nodding time to the swing of it with their stupid heads and mark you may believe it or not but before i got through the entire assemblage were placidly bobbing their heads in solemn unison mourners undertakers and all the moment i had finished i fled to the ante-room in a state bordering on frenzy of course it would be my luck to find a sorrowing and aged maiden aunt of the deceased there who had arrived from springfield too late to get into the church she began to sob and said oh oh he is gone he is gone and i didn't see him before he died yes i said he is gone he is gone he is gone oh will this suffering never cease you loved him then oh you too loved him loved him loved who why my poor george my poor nephew oh him yes oh yes yes certainly certainly punch punch oh this misery will kill me bless you bless you sir for these sweet words i too suffer in this dear loss were you present during his last moments yes i uh, wh whose last moments his the dear departed's yes oh yes 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 i suppose so i think so i don't know oh certainly i was there i was there oh what a privilege what a precious privilege and his last words oh do tell me tell me his last words what did he say he said he said oh my head my head my head he said he said he never said anything but punch 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 in the presence of the passenger oh leave me madam in the name of all that is generous leave me to my madness my misery my despair a buff trip slip for a six-cent fare a pink trip slip for a three-cent fare endurance can no further go punch in the presence of the passenger my friend's hopeless eyes rested upon mine a pregnant minute and then he said impressively mark you do not say anything you do not offer me any hope but ah me it is just as well it is just as well you could not do me any good the time has long gone by when words could comfort me something tells me that my tongue is doomed to wag forever to the jigger of that remorseless jingle there there it is coming on me again a blue trip slip for an eight-cent fare a buff trip slip for a thus murmuring faint and fainter my friend sank into a peaceful trance and forgot his sufferings in a blessed respite how did i finally save him from the asylum i took him to a neighboring university and made him discharge the burden of his persecuting rhymes into the eager airs of the poor unthinking students how is it with them now the result is too sad to tell why did i write this article it was for a worthy even a noble purpose it was to warn you reader if you should come across those merciless rhymes to avoid them avoid them as you would a pestilence end of chapter eight and end of old times on the mississippi by mark twain